Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. theater lovers both out and proud and on the dl and welcome to broadway breakdown a podcast discussing the history and legacy of american theater's most exclusive address broadway this is the first of many series devoted to specific artists that have helped shape broadway as we know it today both for better and for worse it is called A Little Sondheim Music, and it is dedicated to the musicals of one Mr. Stephen Sondheim. I'm your host, Matt Koplick, the least famous and most opinionated of all the Broadway podcast hosts. And with me today is a writer, a composer, a creator, an all-around mad person. You know him as the creator of the wonderfully cult, boppy, teenage killer musical, We Are the Tigers. I think that was a pretty accurate representation of it. Uh, please welcome to the podcast, Preston, Max, Allen. Thank you so much, Matt Koplick. That is correct. Those are all the uh, YouTube tags we use. <laughs> Sorry. I found I have found that my laugh is very harsh and piercing. And so when, <laughs> when I <laughs> find myself I having to laugh, I have to move away from the mic <laughs> for fear of piercing my guest's ears. I like that it's like a concert and you're like, <laughs> Yes. Oh, when I'm an old man laughing, I'm going to be the most obnoxious person. I'm going to be like, ha, 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 ha. Laughter is medicine. You are a healer. And that is why my skin is so flawless. Oh, truly. <laughs> Preston, what are we talking about today in the Sondheim canon? What if I didn't know? <laughs> we are talking <laughs> about Gypsy, the classic, the iconic, the incredible Gypsy. The, the musical fable, one might say. Sure. I won't lie. So when I approached you about doing this series and I said, are there Sondheim shows in particular you feel very strongly about? This was like, I think either this was the one you said or it was one of like three you said. And I was very surprised to have to hear you or read to read. It was a text to read that you were interested in Gypsy because I never really thought of that as like part of your Sondheim MO. I think in my mind, I was like, oh, Preston's going to want to do Merrily. Preston's going to want to do Assassins. And then you're like, I love Gypsy. I was like, okay. Are you ready? to be shocked even yes. further by my journey. So I didn't know, Mer- I didn't know Merrily at all until I saw the Roundabout show, like recently. 
the famous 90 minute one. Mm-hmm. The very, yes. So I saw, I saw that one and I was like, there we go. I've fulfilled, and I've never seen assassins. So I'm very unfamiliar with assassins. Um, yeah. I mean, I've never seen this. Oh, that's a lie. I have seen assassins live. I saw it at city center. What am I talking about? But uh, I've never seen production. <laughs> no, it was pretty good. It was, you know, sure. assassins should be in a small theater and city center famously has 2,200 seats. So, you know, you're watching, it's like watching Uncle Vanya at Yankee Stadium, you know? My dream. Is it, that's, how Chekhov, that's how Chekhov wrote it. But uh, no, I, I absolutely feel you. Like I never saw Merrily Live. I just have a great depth of knowledge. And I even asked all the potential guests, I was like, is there a Sondheim show you don't know well that maybe mm-hmm. like now's the opportunity to like learn more about? And most people have said no. <laughs> they said, I would really like to talk about the show I know. So I have a couple of people who, I roped into it and I'm like, you're going to do the shows that nobody wants. I mean, if I had more time, I would, but I'm like really, I'm like really obsessive about learning everything I can as much as possible. So to start at square one would have just become, it would have consumed me. I would have been like, now I not am an assassin, but I'm really (laughs) slipping right in, right into the vibe. Where, where does your uh, knowledge of Gypsy begin? When did it enter your life? I am not sure. The, and the reason being that my dad is huge into musicals. I was raised on musicals and largely like on these classic musicals. And Gypsy obviously is at the forefront of that. So I saw that Bette Midler movie when I was a tot when mm. I was young. And then it just recurred in my life. Um, and then in my older years, <laughs> my elderly moments, like for the last two years, I've been like, oh, Gypsy is actually like, truly incredible like because when you're a kid you're like look at this fun musical and like studying it and writing it I'm like oh no Gypsy's like a feat and like a very defining piece um you know absolutely every moment matters and is effective every song mm-hmm. slaps as the kids say yeah um, Gypsy is a show though where it's it, it all fits and everything has a purpose but it is a show where if you I don't say if you do it wrong because I don't like the idea of doing a show wrong but if you if you lean on certain things too much or you maybe like misinterpret some things some moments don't have the wallop that they should or can seem like they drag pace I always talk about pacing pacing in a show is very important and we'll talk about that with Gypsy when we get to some of the revivals that Gypsy has had uh it has had a roller coaster ride of pacing because <laughs> it is so long if you mess that pacing up it is a long show it's a, yeah. it's a very long first act the second act is almost exclusively book and you need energy you need focus but also maybe not three lines of cocaine maybe just one or two my mom played um louise in high school no way. so that's always been part of the experience of gypsy for me it's going mom Oh, also, while we're talking about formative gypsy experiences, I asked my dad, who studies musicals and has written musicals and uh, cares deeply, like, do you have any fun facts about gypsy? And he was like, there is a Will and Grace episode where they're trying to, like, educate this gay guy on, like, how, quote, unquote, how to, like, be gay. Mm -hmm. And they bring him these, like, five editions of gypsy to, like, go over. And my dad was like, I had one more than that. (laughs) I was like my dad out gypsied Will and Grace on Gypsy, so it's in the family. It's in the DNA here. I'm assuming he had a K Medford album of Gypsy because that's <gasps> oh my gosh, K Medford, K Medford who uh, played Barbara Streisand's mother in Funny Girl on both Broadway and the movie. That's one of those uh, Gypsy albums that is elusive. It's you can't find it. He's gonna <laughs> find it now if he doesn't have it. Oh, I'm Father- sure. Oh my well, god, it'll be a Father's Day gift. 
that's a great Father's Day gift. Find it's, it. it's you can definitely hear clips of it online, but it's definitely one of those things that went out of print because they realized, oh, nobody wanted this. <laughs> They're like, what? Nobody was gonna buy thousands of copies of Barbara Streisand's Stage Mother in Gypsy. I don't know. I'm interested. You've piqued my interest. I love well, an off the beaten path interpretation. That's because I'm an amazing Willie Loman. Honey, this salesman's not dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my I'm similar to you. I was raised on musicals. I come from a theater loving family. No one ever wrote musicals, but my whole family loves theater and we're a very opinionated family. So everyone has their opinions on things. But Gypsy was always, you know, the show that everyone loves. And the interest, and maybe this is where my love for this. Per- particular production came from but I was first really introduced to it through the movie the Rosalind Russell movie and I liked it because I was like five or six and didn't know any better and then my dad got me the Tyne Daly recording and I loved that then he got me the Merman recording and I loved that but Tyne Daly was the first one so my order was Daly, Merman, Bernadette Peters, um, Angela Lansbury, Patti Lapone. And then somewhere in there, Rosalind Russell started it. And then somewhere in there, Bette Midler came into play. I want to say like middle school, I got into the Bette Midler gypsy. Then that, I think that like settled our preliminary discussion opinions for me. Like I understand now more because I was like a betch. I was like raised mm-hmm. on that movie. It was one of the ones I like watched over and over as a child. So that was like, I was very familiar with, and they're very different and I'm sure we'll get Oh to yeah. It. Well, it's, it, and well, yeah, exactly. We will absolutely get to it. Cause you know, when you talk about Gypsy, you have to talk about all the women who have played Rose. Cause not only is Rose un, uh, um, inarguably the greatest role for a musical theater actress, some of the greatest musical theater actresses have played her. Mm-hmm. It's 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 just one of those things. You have to kind of talk all about all about them. The first time I ever saw Gypsy live on stage, fun fact, was at Paper Mill Playhouse, where she was where Rose was played by Miss Betty Buckley. Oh, I couldn't find video of that. Is video of that? There is some. Okay. It basically it's exactly what you would think it would be. So you know I'm a Carrie head, so that's not a, that's not a fan title. I think I love the, Carrie. The writer of Carrie Two, the musical, is a Carrie head. You don't say. <laughs> I forgot I wrote that moment. How could you? Honestly, Preston, I you know I love We Are the Tigers. I will bop to that score from here to, to the day I die. I think your best overall work is actually Carrie too. Oh, I agree with you. (laughs) So Tigers, I love Tigers, but yeah, no, I think it's also my most like traditionally styled score. So I'm really proud of like the classic nature of it. I know I, we're on the same page here. Don't worry. Boy, you have, you have like, you have so many classic musical theater songs in that score, but you're also you. So it's not as if you're actually writing My Fair Lady. It's just how how Preston Max Allen would do and wouldn't it be loverly kind of song for Carrie too. No, I actually really meant to emulate My Fair Lady in that score. So I'm really wounded right now. That's me. I wound people all the time with my words. So how... I, let's let's just dive into it because we got a lot to cover. We're going to go into the history. We're going to go into the plot. I also want to say... I I was telling Preston this before we recorded. I'm recording these episodes sort of out of order. I just finished the forum episode. This is the first three episodes of this series are the only episodes where we're really going to kind of go through the plot of the show, like song by song, beat by beat, because it is the shows are constructed in a way that it's good to analyze them in this way. And these are also the only Sondheim shows where we really can do that after forum. And we get into anyone can whistle and company follies territory in assassins territory. It's a little more difficult to be like, then in the story, this happens because they're more about 
themes and experiences and feelings than they are about like a linear story. Which is great. Yeah, it's wonderful. We love to see it. We love to hear it. Uh, So Gypsy, let's start with Gypsy's Road to Broadway. So technically- it's it's a very fast gypsy. Yeah. I didn't I didn't know that gypsy was written in essentially four months. Yeah, when I saw when that because uh, I was like, let me look this up, and I was like, oh, the memoir came out in fifty seven, and they were like on Broadway in fifty nine. Yeah, <laughs> they and like they, snatched that up. They did, and they were writing it in like they, the yeah the memoir came out in fifty seven. I think it got bought, and the only reason why I think it opened in fifty nine was like, it was like a solid year before they finally landed on the creative team for yeah, gypsy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone who worked on Gypsy in the end, with the exception of Jerome Robbins, who directed and choreographed it, nobody was first choice. Everybody was either second, third, or fourth choice to do this show. Um, Originally, Betty Compton and Adolph Green were going to do the book, and they basically, they returned their advance and they said, we can't, we don't know how to crack this. Uh, The memoir of Gypsy, of which the musical Gypsy is based off of, is the memoir of one Gypsy Rose Lee, who was a world-renowned stripper. She basically took what was considered the most low rent version of entertainment that was like debauchery. Not much has changed since then. And in terms of the public perception of it, let's say, Mm -hmm. and she elevated it to make it an art form and to make herself world renowned and famous. She didn't always take a lot of clothes off. She would talk about current events while she would strip. She would talk about what was on her mind. A lot of comedy, a lot of comedy, a lot of jokes, sharp wit. Yeah. Uh, Which is really uh, what's what I'm looking for? It's really advanced for that time. For this was like the 1930s, I guess, when she was really starting to do this. For a woman in America to do this kind of act and to un to to knowingly show the audience without the audience being aware of it, like you are going to ogle my body and my brain, and the only way I'm going to get you to ogle my brain is to have you look at my body. Yeah, it was super innovative. Yeah. <laughs> And we get to see her, you know, in her in what feels like an authentic, comfortable version of performance for her that came out of this, you know, maybe unexpected form, but that she really learns, like, yeah, how to get people in the room. <laughs> yeah, she she Gypsy Rose Lee is a is a perfect example of someone who learned how to work the system in her favor. So she yeah. she knew like I can't change the system from where I'm at. To quote the great Tess McGill in the movie Working Girl. You can change the rules plenty once you get upstairs, but not while you're trying to get there. And if you're someone like me, you can't get upstairs without changing the rules. So that is where we're at with one Miss Gypsy Rosalie. I like that your brain said that and my brain said, as they say, sex sells. So we have two different paths to which you can go down. I, I'm, quote, I'm already quoting myself for an episode that technically won't have come out yet, but I've already recorded. Uh, uh, this we is, love this, some time travel. This is Doctor Who, big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff right here right now. But I do something similar with Patrick Sulkin on forum. I quote when Harry met Sally in regards to something. And I'm like, Patrick, aren't you so glad you chose to know me? And he's like, I don't know how your brain works. I couldn't be more glad to know you both. Well, well can't wait for that. Right, right back at you, Press. Uh, Gypsy Rose Lee comes out with this memoir, it, and it's immediately optioned by producer David Merrick. And th- what's so interesting is this memoir was optioned to become a musical with nothing in place other than Ethel Merman wants to play the mother role. We'll make a musical about this memoir with Ethel Merman as the mom, and we'll figure out the rest later. <laughs> Being in more in like pitch land right now for things that actually makes perfect sense is something that would sell in a second. You're yeah. like, we have these two things and we'll figure the rest out. 
Like, I feel yeah, I feel like Hollywood is still kind of in that way. They're like, so and so is gonna play this, and we'll figure everything out later. They are can but, confirm. <laughs> yes, but Broadway, I feel like it's a little less that now. It's a bit more. We have to have yes yeah. something to go off of. We need a song. We need a whatever. So. Uh, I do love that this was sort of how Gypsy, same thing happened with Annie Get Your Gun was just Dorothy Fields was like, Ethel Merman is Annie Oakley. And everyone went, done, take my money, figure out who's going to write it later. It's so funny because when you're like, I think when I was growing up, Ethel Merman was kind of this like, she goes, oh, and like, that's like the yeah. like, parody, like satire and parodies about her. But when you like actually go back and like look at her life, you're like, no, she was like an incredible, not even just performer, but like force. Like, yeah, she was. Walking into a room and be like, she's going to do it and it would happen. Yeah, she was the kind of Broadway star that we really don't have anymore. Yeah. Any stars we have of that magnitude are people who have done movies and TV and are known for that as well as for Broadway. Someone like, say, Hugh Jackman, right? Mm, true. Um, Betty Condon and Adolph Green were going to write it. They returned the advance because they're like, we don't know how to crack this. Yeah. They approach Arthur Lawrence, who's sort of still riding high from West Side Story, which like is so fascinating to me having just covered West Side Story. Like the thing that people all sort of agreed about West Side Story was like the book was sort of good enough to hold it all together, but wasn't the thing people walked away going that book. So for them to be like, let's get that guy to write Chip to write this book heavy show. I feel like they're like, well, we know what we're getting, which is he can do it and it'll be doable. Yeah, (laughs) sure. He wrote um, The Time of the Cuckoo and Rope and Anastasia, the movie. And they're like, yeah, this guy. But so he get he signs on to do it. And then they, Ethel Merman wants either Cole Porter or Irving Berlin to do the score. Irving Berlin's basically like, no, I'm tired. Cole Porter's sort of come to the end of his life. His legs have been amputated and he's like, I don't have... Oh yeah, Cole Porter famously got into a horseback riding accident in the early 40s, which like crushed his legs and he became um, handicapped for the rest of his life. Oh yeah, like had major health complications from then on and sort of went through this major depression and and alcohol spiral. I missed that part of De Lovely. Where, when did you go to the bathroom during the lovely? Cause that's in there. I was so young. I saw it when it like came out. I don't know what, I, what age I saw it in theaters. Yeah. Cole Porter's basically like, I'm, I have no energy left to write a musical. So then Jerome Robbins having just worked with Stephen Sondheim, Sondheim's currently writing a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. And that show is famously taking forever to write. Cause Bershevlev and Larry Galbart, who are writing the script, are like, it's going to take us four years to write this show. <laughs> and meanwhile, Sondheim's like, well, I wrote the score already. So he sends Jerome Robbins the score and Jerome Jerome Robbins is like, great, you'll write the score for Gypsy. This is exactly what we're looking for. But Ethel Merman has just done her very first flop, Happy Hunting. And she's like, no, 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 no. I will not take a new composer. That's what I did with Happy Hunting. So she's like, Stephen Sondheim can write the lyrics and we'll get Julie Stein to write the music. And Sondheim's like, fuck that. I want to write music. And Oscar Hammerstein, his mentor is like, listen, I know you want to write music. I know you're tired of hearing this. This is a good experience for you. You'll write for a star. That's very important. And, and like, I love Sondheim, but I don't need a different sound from. I'm so glad Ethel was like, no. Like, I love the score. For yeah, the score as it is is perfect. It it's one of those things where it did just work out. But um, the the downside of it is, and he says it in I think either it's either finishing the hat or it's his or it's maybe it's Sondheim and Company. He's like, I was afraid that by the, when Gypsy coming out of me being a lyricist again, by the time I did write a score of my own, people would be like, oh, this lyricist guy thinking he can um, write music, which is kind of what happened. Um, he kind of had to combat that for a while. And it's interesting because Gypsy is technically speaking his fourth score because he first writes Saturday Night, which 
as we all know, never made it to Broadway. It was the first thing he ever wrote, and it came to New York finally in the year 2000 off Broadway at second stage. The score for Saturday Night is what gets him to write the lyrics for West Side. And then from West Side Story, he gets to write Forum. He basically has his work finished for Forum, but Forum's not ready to come to Broadway yet. And then writes Gypsy, which is his fourth show, uh, but technically second show to make it to Broadway. So it's an interesting trajectory. Much like the recording of this podcast, it's all out of order. It all comes together. Julie Stein does write the music. They write the whole thing in four months. They go into rehearsals with Ethel Merman. They go out of town to Philadelphia and it does pretty well. They're, they always say the biggest problem with Gypsy was two things. One was that it was too long when they got out of the town and they just had to constantly cut stuff. And that Jerome Robbins, who was writing so high from West Side Story of like, I'm Jerome Robbins. He had this vision of Gypsy being this sort of, it, it was, he wanted, because a lot of Gypsy is about vaudeville, he wanted it to be a vaudeville itself. So like have all these acts in between scenes and like- I heard about the acts. Yes, yeah, basically like um, he wanted Gypsy to be Will Rogers Follies before Will Rogers Follies was Will Rogers Follies, which say that sentence nine times fast. Get ready. <laughs> it, it simply can't be done. But I mean, you're familiar with Will Rogers Follies, I'm assuming. If not, no, it's super well, like, yeah. I it's, saw, it was one of those things I saw when I was young. So like, if you need me to recap it, it's not gonna it's, happen. It's but, like, like my brain it, flashes it. It's Tommy Toon's version of a concept musical where it's, you know, Will Rogers is life in the style of a Follies. So it's got chorus numbers and, you know, animal acts that have nothing to do with the plot. And it's, that is what Jerome Robbins wanted for Gypsy. Um, so like in between- See that as, as like seemingly making sense. Yeah. And they like left one of those things about, which is the like play cards on the edge of the stage in between scenes to like tell mm-hmm. you what the next scene is. That's like the one thing they keep from the vaudeville idea but everything else is is the show. Uh, the other main change that happens out of town is Rose's turn, which we'll get to when we talk about Rose's Ooh. turn. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it is. I'm so excited to be surprised. Oh, it has to do with Oscar Hammerstein. Maybe Ooh. is that no? Okay, great. I look no, forward. I, look I really forward. don't know. I look and forward. I, to it. I know that like Rose is maybe a lesbian at this point, so I've learned a lot. Yeah. So that that's <laughs> that is what got Arthur Lawrence to do the project. Really? He, well, he turned it down first, which I I love. And then they were Lawrence. like, "She's a lesbian," and he was like, "Sign me up." Am I the reincarnated? <laughs> you are present. Were you in the room where it happens? Because that's exactly what happened. It's it's um what happened he he's offered it and he he turns it down like more than once because Arthur Lawrence is fam- was famously an asshole and what what happens up happening is he's at a dinner party and they're all they're doing like a round robin of what was your first time and it's a lot of gay men lesbians straight men straight women and they're all talking about their first time and some woman goes my first time was with uh, Gypsy Rose's Lee's mother and Arthur Lawrence goes. Like, I want to write about that woman. I can't believe that I didn't even know. Like, that seems like the thing that I would know that would have made me choose this show for mm. you. But, like, I didn't even know that until I was researching. <laughs> there you go. You know, the, the, like, road to Gypsy kind of coming to Broadway is not as rough as, say, like, West Side Story or Forum. So it's really just the roughest part about it was just assembling the team. So the show opens. It has really amazing reviews. Like, probably the best reviews of the season. And, uh is a pretty solid hit, runs for about two years. And um, yeah, I kind of wanted to leave it at that so we can get into like the legacy of it all. But I'm trying to think if there's any ma- major points to make about Gypsy before we get into like the actual show show. Uh, I had a fun discovery that yes. it's just my brain didn't compute this. Was it Gypsy and Sound of Music were the same year? Famously the same year. 
I my brain is I don't know why I thought Sound of Music was just like birthed as one of the first music like I know it's not but it just feels like so early musical theater it just like doesn't feel on the same like you want to know what the same world is well because Sound of Music is Rodgers and Hammerstein and it's the last original Rodgers and Hammerstein musical that they collaborated on together and it's ironic that that show actually kind of now defines them because Hammerstein didn't write the book for Sound of Music and you can tell because that show is so quaint. It is so it is quaint as fuck. It is so quaint. And Oscar Hammerstein famously loved to take like these big, bold risks with his books, you know, whether it was the subject matter or like how to present it. So I'm I think if he were if you were to come back from the grave today and be told like sound of music's the thing you're probably most well known for, he'd be like, fuck that shit. Oh, he'd no. be so angry. What was his container like the Von Trapp children telling the story as they were like walking across the mountains, escaping frantically and using it as a coping mechanism to not worry about trauma? Probably. I don't know. <laughs> I wasn't in the room where it happened. Uh, I couldn't tell you what he pitched. I think that they were brought on last minute to it. I think it was gonna be a play. The story oh, I heard is that about was, singing children. <laughs> well, Preston, this is why Broadway is history because you look back on these things and you go, but of because like that was also back in the time when you could do plays that had songs in it and it was still technically speaking. Oh, a you play. still can. Indecent is a play. And well, yeah, Indecent is a very different kind of play. But I mean, Indecent is not a play about people who sing. It has it uses music to help propel this it. Is, but it's this is true. Yes, Sound of Music. On paper, you think, of course, a story about a singing family. It must be a musical. No, 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 no. The to people. The odds. I think it was the people who wrote the play Life with Father, which is weirdly a play that was so successful and now no one knows about anymore. It. it was one of. The, it's like one of the longest running plays of all time, like three thousand performances or something. And cats of plays. Cats of plays, and no one knows about it. It does. It's not around anymore. But anyway, they were going to write a play of it, and then they're like, I think this needs to be a musical, and they're like. Oscar Hammerstein, Richard Rogers, want to write a score for us? And they did. And that's the last one. Gypsy, actually, because it's the same year, Gypsy is the last work of Stephen Sondheim's that Oscar Hammerstein lives to see. And, oh. he, and he only lives to see the out-of-town triode. I don't think he ever saw it on Broadway because he died of cancer pretty soon after. Hmm. Yeah, very sad. Well, at least it was like a great show and not, you know, yeah. a shitty, shitty show. And he goes, oh, God, the guy be- I mentored really is a dud. Yeah. <laughs> It's not bounce. It's not him going. Oh, I've I mentored this douche. <laughs> that's the that's the last scene of the of the autobiography. <laughs> His Hammerstein's final words are, "I mentored this douche." Beep. Okay. <laughs> it's like Thirty Rock. You have to tell him, or I won't get into heaven. Flat line. Um, yeah, I think Sondheim always was sort of upset that Hammerstein never lived to see a full score of Sondheim's get produced, but he was around to, you know, hear music of Stephen Sondheim. So it's not all for nothing. No, no, certainly not. It's not how I would describe it. Certainly not all for nothing. Sondheim (laughs) says that this is the show where he really came of age. He learned how to collaborate on West Side Story, but Gypsy was really where he learned how to crystallize the idea of writing for a character in a specific situation. Because he likes Gypsy in a way that he didn't like West Side Story. His work on West Side Story, he's he's very critical of. He is. And I think, uh, I understand why he's critical of West Side Story, knowing the person that he became as a writer, of the, the man who you know, would write Ladies Who Lunch and A Weekend in yeah. the Country, would listen to I Feel Pretty and Tonight and go, I hate those lyrics. I argue West Side Story is really the only Sondheim musical that's so unabashedly romantic that he never really ever was again. Because even something like Passion, which, I mean, it's been a minute since I've listened to Passion. I will get to it when I get to it on this podcast. But <laughs> <laughs> the that is, I feel like, good whenever you decide. To. I, 
I do feel like that's everyone's MO with passion. I'll get to it when I get to it. But passion is, you know, a romantic musical, but it's a, it's a really twisted kind of romance. It's not, he oh, can't yeah. even bring himself to write like a, I love you and I love you too song. It's a, I love you, get the hell away from me show. It's like me on Tinder. It's all of us on Tinder. Press and Someone and- once uh, unmatched me because I just, they asked me to describe the plot of being John Malkovich and I did, and then they unmatched me. Anyway, that's just a fun fact for you. I went on a date with someone. I went on a four hour date with someone where we had the best time. And at the end of the date, I said, you know, I like you. And he said, why would you say that? And I never heard from him again. <gasps> oh my God. It's fine. I'm going to die alone. So Gypsy opens. You and I both. No. Okay. <laughs> Gypsy opens with the overture to end all overtures. That overture, it doesn't, you could do a mediocre production of Gypsy and that overture will still rock the house down. Also, whoever was the percussionist in that is just having the time of their lives. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) So we end the overture, we go into... It's not an audition. It's like a weird tech rehearsal for a for a kitty vaudeville show, I guess, with Uncle John. Yeah, I always read it as a like as you could get cut from the show if you were not successful in that moment. Yeah, it's supposed to be a contest, I guess. Yeah, it's some sort of auditiony esque thing. Thing. Yeah, exactly. And we are introduced to a whole bunch of kids and. We meet uh, two children, Baby June and Company. Company is her sister Louise. I love that shade, Baby June and Company. And it's one little girl. And they and sing. It's Elizabeth Moss in the movie. It's Baby Elizabeth Louise. Moss in the Bette Miller movie. Yes, yes, yes. Lacey Chabert. And Lacey Chabert. Yes. <laughs> I blew my mind when I found that out. Totally. They do a little bit of May We Entertain You and. We hear Mama Rose saying the say the iconic words, sing out Louise from the back of the house. This scene is really fascinating to me because it the, I would say like the first 20 minutes of Gypsy like barrels through exposition and character development to sort of get to like where the real story, story, story starts. It's like the first 20 minutes is essentially prologue, but it's a really fast prologue. It's like horror movie structure where they're all fine for 20 minutes and then it all comes crashing down. Exactly. Well, because we already established, we have all the stage moms on stage with their little kids and Uncle Jocko's like, okay, we're locking them out in the alley. I don't want any moms in the theater. So all the moms are ushered out. So no mom can get into the theater, but Rose manages a way to get into the theater and barrel down the aisle and like cut off everybody. She's a, she's a steam train. She's uh, telling the light guys how to light her children. She's telling the conductor how to conduct. We find out she's been married three times. She has a dog named Chowzy, short for Chow Main, because she loves Chinese food. And it's all within like five minutes. It's crazy. It's so much. And it's just a great star entrance. Yeah. Yeah. From a book writing perspective, Preston, would you say that this is iconic? Oh, yeah. Sing out, Louise. Oh, my God. Are you fucking kidding me? You yeah. can't do better than that. <laughs> you can't have a better entrance. Than that. You really can't get a better entrance. I mean, I didn't. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but please, I'm stuffing it right here, right now. <laughs> I had opened my mouth for all of you who couldn't, who can't see this, which is all of you. It's because podcasts are not a visual medium, despite how visual I am when I record. I will. So, don't worry. I will. I will audio describe my actions if necessary. Yes, this is becoming a radio play. We go then to. <laughs> 
Rose's house where she, her daughters, June and Louise are living with her father. They win the competition, but it's like 10 bucks and Rose isn't into it. They're, she's She has a dream. She dreamed up an act for baby, baby June and her newsboys. I love, we already are getting hints of how thrifty Rose is and how much she cheats people out of things. You know, when June says, how are we going to, how are we going to get the boys? Well, Louise can be a boy. And how are you going to pay the rest of the boys? The experience will be their pay, which is crazy. She's going Nothing to kidnap, has changed. she's going to kidnap <laughs> children for the sake of her daughter's act and never pay them once. It is a horror movie. It is. And she's eating dog food because they're saving money on food so they can buy costumes and sets. And I'm like, this is it's like so truly like like jazz hands classic musical theater, but with such an upsetting underlying plot where if you're like, if you pay too much attention to it, you're like, this is a lot of abuse. Yeah, well, so that's sort of the, well, to be fair, she's not making her daughters eat dog food. She is eating dog food. The daughters are, <laughs> the daughters get to eat Chinese food after the show because they did all the work. But yeah, no, you're right. It is one, but only one egg roll a piece. <laughs> yeah, one, one egg roll a piece. And then I, oh God, I love the like, it's both really obvious and yet really well done at the same time when the girls are going to bed and Louise comes back and she says, June said you could sleep with her tonight. Well, you know how high strung the baby is after performance. I performed. It ain't the same. It's like, it's, oh, it's such obvious dialogue to set up what we're setting up and yet it doesn't feel forced. It's really well done. Well, it's cause like Louise receives it in a way where you can tell it's very familiar to her. Yes, she's she's so desperate for her mother's approval and love, and she knows that the only way to get it is to be either talented or useful, and she's not really talented. So as she gets older, we learn she's useful, but or she may or she rather she makes herself useful to the act. But it's the, the whole the whole arc of the show is everybody wants to get noticed, everybody wants to feel like they matter and that they exist. Rose talks to her father about needing money for the act for her daughters. And we learned that Rose's mom walked out on her when she was a little girl, which clearly has stayed with her to this day. Bookmark that sentiment. Bookmark the fact that her mother left her. It is going to come back in and pay out much later in the show. Every breath. (laughs) Yes. One of the greatest breakdowns of all time. She sings some people. Now, do you know the story of how this song came to be? Um, Elaborate on it. I want to hear your version of it. Because I read parts of the NPR interview. Okay. So so Sondheim is very open about when he was writing the lyrics for Gypsy, he would like talk to Arthur Lawrence on the phone twice a day while Arthur Lawrence was writing the script to like discuss plot points and like where a song should happen and what's happening in the song and all this other stuff. And they knew that they needed an I want song from Rose where it's both an I want song and also her trying to work her father into giving her either money to uh, pay for her daughter's vaudeville act or can uh, let her take his gold plaque to Hawk and use the money to pay for the act. So it's both an I want song and, and she's working the room, but the, he couldn't find an angle into it. And he and Arthur Lawrence are walking down Park Avenue and they're between 57th and 58th Street and they're talking about Rose and Arthur Lawrence says, I don't know, you know, just like how some people are. And then Stalentheim goes, stop. And he's like, I have to go home. And he like runs home to write the lyric. Anybody that stays home is dead. If I die, it won't be from sitting. It'll be from fighting to get up and get out. Some people can get a thrill knitting sweaters and sitting still. Okay for some people who don't know they're alive. Some people is also important because it has the motif 
I had a dream, which pops up a lot in this show. Like you're never going to hear it again after some people. No, it's famously, <laughs> one, famously one and done. As we know, Sondheim doesn't like themes. He doesn't like motifs. Every song's so different. Yeah, the song ends. Her father won't give her 88 cents. And she just decides to grab the plaque anyway, hawk it, and take her daughters to Los Angeles where they will get their act booked on uh, various vaudeville circuits. And they do a nice little reprise of some people and she steals a bunch of boys on the road and they go to get their act booked. Uh, last thoughts on some people before we move right along? No, I think I, I think we covered it. We then meet Herbie in Los Angeles. Rose is trying to get her act book and booked and the agent says, is there anything I hate worse than kids? It's kids on stage. And I sit there and I go, preach sister. So we meet Herbie who was formerly an agent and now he sells candy to theaters and helps Rose get the act booked, not because he's seen the act and likes it. He hasn't seen the act, but because he has the hots for Rose. And don't we all? Don't we all? Now, there's some debate as to whether Rose actually has the hots for Herbie in this scene or if she's just trying to play him. What are your thoughts? I feel like she's always using him more than anything. I think she does have feelings for him, but more than anything, he's always like a tool. I don't yeah. think she like not like not like a tool like no Herbie's the sweetest he's like, not literally he's a tool. he's like like something she is using to get something done yeah um and he knows that and I think he's always trying to like hope that she will wear down or she'll get tired of it all and love him with the amount he needs and you know obviously we watch him realize that he's always going to be a you know a puzzle piece yeah I th- I think that's absolutely accurate I think the whole show Herbie is hoping that Rose will love the man more than the agent and i think she does love both but i think she loves the agent a bit more because her dream is you know she wants her daughters to be famous she says early on it's too late for me it's not too late for my daughters i want them to experience life i want them to see the world i want them to do something that matters and to her something that matters is show business to become stars whatever that means and rose is sort of the ultimate depiction of delusion because she wants it so badly and but also wants it with certain strings attached she wants it to happen but she wants it to happen because of her she wants it's not enough that her children have to become stars they have to become stars because she made it happen it's always about her it's like, oh, yeah. absolutely and well, she's yeah. never going to see anything through a lens that isn't show business like first exactly like her kids and you know. june could become the first woman president she's like yeah but the act or she'll be like making speeches being like, yeah, I'm the reason she's the first woman president. Well, the whole reason Joan's the first woman president is I got her in, on the Orpheum circuit. The Orpheum circuit. <laughs> Small World is this interesting song where it is a lovely song and it is really tender, but the undercurrent is that she is kind of playing Herbie. She's seducing him to get him on her side. And it's it's another it's another grift, but it's a sweeter grift. That's an important sign. Lucky, you're a woman with children. Small world, isn't it? Do you know the other story with the song of what the song was supposed to be? No, please tell me. So for anyone who's like, you're reading into it, it's not that dark of a song. It's not that mean-spirited. Small world was supposed to be done in counterpoint to another song called Mama's Talking Soft. Oh, yeah, I heard about Mama's Talking Soft. Yes, which gets referenced at the end of the show, but they cut it out of town. So the whole thing was Herbie and Rose are singing Small World, and or rather Rose is singing Small World because 
the original Herbie Jack Klugman could not sing. And he was like, don't make me sing unless I absolutely have to. So Small World was basically a solo for Merman. And then in later revivals, it became a duet. But she's singing Small World. And then halfway through the song, the lights are supposed to come up on Louise and June in like the flies of the theater watching their mom put the moves on Herbie. And they're singing a song called Mama's Talking Soft. And basically them like knowing that their mom is playing this guy. Mm -hmm. Or at least, you know, even like sort of like if she even if she does have the hots for him she's using those feelings to get what she wants i'm glad it was cut i think we achieve enough with if mama were married I, I, but I see why it was devised well and the whole reason it was cut wasn't because they went oh this doesn't work as well in counterpoint is because when they went out of town they got on stage and the two girls go up to the flies and the girl who plays louise starts having a panic attack and she won't do it and they're like well and Jerome Robbins is like, I'm not restaging it. And they're like, great, we'll just cut it. Well, she had great taste because uh, it is. it helps the show. The show is long mm-hmm. and it's largely about Rose. And it really helps to believe there's a glimmer of hope for her humanity to like win. And I mm-hmm. think if you had, not you obviously, but if there had been cynicism surrounding that, it would have made her, it would have been harder to connect to her as like a character who potentially could grow. Yeah, there's already so much cynicism with Rose. We don't need more added on there which will which again we will get to when we talk about like later performances and productions of the show but rose is already such rose is such a watchable character i wouldn't say she's a likable character she's watchable and she's charismatic but she's not always a very good person you know she has she's she's human she's all these conflicts she's really sort of the first female anti-hero in a musical when you think about it because we've had male anti-heroes in the 40s and 50s and she's really the first female lead who is really an anti-hero and i think in order to make her work we have to we don't have to like her but we have to understand why we're watching her and if you put too much cynicism on her all the time it's like why am i watching this dump truck like just be nasty all the time so one of the reviews from tryouts (laughs) that's really why that little girl cried she was like cut this song it's bad and it undermines rose's humanity (laughs) And they were like, she uh, was afraid of heights. <laughs> was, uh, we can't let the press know that a nine-year-old knew better than we did. So she was afraid of heights. So that's the real history of Gypsy. That's the real history. Oh, welcome. Uh, we then go into Let Me Entertain You, which is, I did not know that this song was supposed to be like disgusting until much later in life. Because I was a kid, and I was like, oh, it's such a bop, and this little girl is selling it. I love it so much. And then as I got older and I watched other interpretations, well, so, okay. I was reading the script as as I, I want to do, and Arthur Lawrence is very clear in his stage directions that the act is not a not supposed to be good, and June is supposed to kind of be terrifying because <laughs> he wins he, on that one. Yeah, well, because like June is not cute. She we have to remember like Rose wrote and staged and designed this whole act, and she directed June to do what she does, and so June is what Rose thinks. A, she thinks what a baby is. And June is all, at the point of the act, June is already probably a year or two too old to be doing this act. Flash forward like nine years later when she's really too old. Yeah. But she's already like a year or two too old to be doing it. And Rose is doing what she thinks like America wants to see a little girl be, which is like a um, baby Jane, uh, Shirley Temple nightmare. Like big poofy dress, bow in her hair. And the actresses who started playing June after the original production, Bonnie Langford in the Angela Lansbury production. And I forgot the name of the girl who did it, the Tyne Daily version, Christine something. She's amazing. She's my favorite baby June to They're this day. They're always so good. <laughs> she is, she's, so, she's so good because she has this like plastered smile on her face. She talks in like a very robotically cute voice. She goes, hello everybody. My name is 
And I never clocked that like it was supposed to, though it makes it funny. It's just like how ridiculous the act is. When I was a kid, I was like, oh, this act is a bop. Yeah. That was, that was pretty much. And then I was like, oh, this is, un- this could be very uncomfortable. Yes. The, 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 the number is funny because you're like, oh, if this were real, I would be in hell right now. <laughs> but that's like, I think why the June actress, actresses are always so incredible is because they sell what is behind that song. Like the job is not to sell the song, it's to sell what's behind it. And they always are so successful at communicating like the terror that is underlying in the circuit like yeah like the sort of the i'm dead inside right now while i'm making an ass of myself in front of two thousand strangers three times a day because that's how vaudeville was <laughs> um yeah i mean other junes have been really good there there are many great baby junes out there my, I, my personal preference is the time daily one and again because it's my first but as i watched the video recently in preparation for this i was like oh this girl is operating on a whole other level from so many child actors we're like she really gets the like this child needs to be a nightmare i'm gonna revisit that with that angle oh please do it's so good i I watched the patty lapone one last night and i was very impressed she does a good job well arthur lawrence directed both productions and she does she does do a very good job there are issues I have with that one. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. I'm, I can't wait. Yeah. I, mean, um, I will wait. <laughs> yeah, yes, you will. Um, what ends up, my other favorite thing about Let Me Entertain You is, so we have the newsboys who do the extra, extra, and that's important to remember for later in the show. Yes. Because this act, no matter whatever, no matter how it changes over the years, and it doesn't change for a very long time, but when it does change, two things about it basically stay the same and that's the beginning and the end which is the extra extra and then where they do a salute to uncle sam and a bald eagle pops out of the set and june twirls some batons and does a split it's just like it's so uh because rose is just like everyone loves an all-american ending it's like even if it doesn't make any sense rose no i love it it's so great (laughs) And then then they do um, a little chug on the stage and we do a strobe light effect and we flash forward and we realize it's 10 years later. And this is all the first 20 minutes. Like we've established the main characters, their wants, they've all met. And then we flash forward 10 years later. And then like really the the story really starts to happen. Yeah. Um, I think that's, I think it's so helpful because it's like, oh, the formative years of your life really do like fly by and can be very traumatic and you don't realize it. Yeah. And especially with something like this where they're doing the same show over and over and over again. It's like, how fast the years go by and it's when you're just doing the same thing all the time yeah so we flash forward to the all the children are much older they're still doing the same act they're sleeping in a hotel room we find out that it's louise's birthday and at first everyone pretends they don't know but then they are like surprise we did oh, you're not as neglected as you thought you were. yeah it's not as full <laughs> 10 it's more like a it's a passive aggressive 6.5 better than nothing yeah, and she gets a bunch of gifts. The boys all hand her gifts that they stole from Five and Dimes because they don't get paid. And that this is actually what I really do love is the passive aggressiveness of the gifts from June and from Rose. June actually does hand does get Louise a pretty thoughtful gift, but it is also a gift that will benefit the act because we now learn that Louise makes all the costumes. So June gets her a sewing kit. And it's like, oh, it's thoughtful. Like, you know, Louise does make the costumes and sewing is one of her pastimes but it's also like <laughs> louise makes all the costumes so it's it's like getting someone jump like someone with a car jumper cables for their birthday it's like th- this is what i need not what i want yeah you know yeah and then rose does the exact same thing she gets uh louise a lamb 
a baby lamb and we find out later it's for technically for a new act that rose has thought of for the for the team it's like you didn't even get your daughter something for just for her it just gets so upsetting when you really break it down yeah but this is still that part of the show where it's all still very much comedic because yeah rose is she's still she's still a fireball she's tells the hotel manager oh there are three of us sleeping in this hotel room and it's actually like seven you know it's it Mm. she's a lot there's a lot of slapsticky stuff even happening. Yeah, there's a thing that got cut in the Lapone revival, which is the hotel manager comes to kick them out because he sees that uh, there are more than three people in the hotel room and there are animals there. And I don't know if you saw this, and I uh, it's in the Bette Midler version, so you would know it, where he's like, how many people are in this room? And he goes into an empty room and she locks the door. She goes, there's no one in this room. And then she starts screaming and pounding him with a pillow and tearing at her clothes because there's a crowd outside and in order to undermine the hotel manager's claims that they're going against hotel rules she does essentially a, a fake rape and it's played for laughs only because like the scene it's it's slapstick and because rose is basically doing absolutely anything to get out of trouble to the point that she will do this and it's at this point we're like yeah that that tracks so it, it's it's she's consistent yes it's it's funny because she's consistent not because the actual act itself is funny well so it's that thing where you're like you can watch it and be like, ha ha, Rose. But then when you're like, Rose, what you are doing is horrifying. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. So you very famously posted something on your story when you were watching the Little Pone Gypsy yesterday. <laughs> and I'm going to, we'll we're going to get to it in like literally, literally three seconds. Because there's a song before the song you have your opinion on. And I'm going to defend the song you have your opinion on. I'm excited for that. My sister tried also. You're not alone. Okay, great. So. What Herbie comes back and uh, after all the kerfuffle and we find out that he has booked the act on the Orpheum circuit, which is like the A-level vaudeville circuit. And it's because of the, uh, this man, Mr. Goldstone, who books all the acts. So Rose sings Mr. Goldstone, which is basically just a list song where she's handing him all this Chinese food to eat and all these things they'll do because he got them so on the Orpheum fun. circuit. So much fun. So much fun. And the whole joke is like how stingy Rose is. And she meets Mr. Goldstone. She's like, have all of our Chinese food. Because that's another instant of like, no one's life matters except for the idea of show business. Yes, just the idea of it. And it's, a, again, it's a fun song. And then following all of that, after this all kerfuffle, we almost we forget that Louise isn't even there during the song. She goes into the next room. And then Louise sings a song called Little Lamb. And this song is divisive. Preston is in the camp with Jerome Robbins that doesn't want the song in the show and wants it cut. I want a different song in that moment. Okay. I think it's basic and infantilizing of a young woman who has more to say than that. I think that's fair. I think that she, I don't think Louise has necessarily found her voice yet. I validate that. I think that if there is a world where she, when you are singing, you can find a little more than you would ever say in real life. So she had an opportunity to express what her voice would be if she could find it in that moment because it's also private. And we just, we don't get that, which is fine. It's just, I don't, the song that is there to me is not almost neglectful enough of her real self to be worth it. See, I think well, that is absolutely accurate, but I don't think that is the intention that Sondheim went into writing the lyrics for Gypsy because it's in finishing the hat, I believe, he says like when he's writing songs, he doesn't use songs necessarily as a way for a character to express more eloquently than they would in dialogue. It's more someone, it's a, it's another way to express themselves and they're not as self-aware as they think they are. It's a way for the audience to listen to the lyric and be like, 
how do you not see what we're seeing? And the character being like, what are you talking about? Um, which is, I think, very evident for a lot of Gypsy. I think the difference between something like what Rose sings and what Louise sings, that little lamb is two minutes and it's really, really slow. But the thing is, despite like, <laughs> the lyrics, you're like, girl, stop listening, stop playing I Spy. Um, I think what we had an opportunity to see is that like, yes, while she hasn't found her voice in a group, we never see before she starts her act that like she's super witty and she's super clever. So when she becomes this comedy, this this like sexy, fierce, sparky comedy act, we have had no glimpse of that, Louise. And this is a moment where we could have seen where that spark is inside of her, like where that energy, how that energy is intrinsically possible within her. Um, and instead, I think we get very much the opposite of that. Um, but because because we do know somewhere in her is Gypsy Rose Lee. That is that exists within her. And instead we have little lamb. <laughs> so two things. One, forever and for always, I will now refer to Little Lamb as the I spy song. <laughs> that is the greatest thing I've ever heard. And second of all, Preston, have we spotted a flaw in Gypsy? Because it's not just in Little Lamb. I would argue for a lot of the show, we don't really see the glimmers of what's gonna be Gypsy Rose Lee. What we see, we eventually see Louise become a stronger person. We see her more, before the strip, we see her grow and sort of have more agency, but we don't see necessarily wit or, or intellect before the strip. And I validate your thought that like, she has not found her voice, she's learning, she's bursting out into it. But there, yeah, there is, it's kind of just like a whoop, like ramp up of like, yeah, she's so quiet, she's so neglected. And then all of a sudden she's like, talk, like doing her act and taking yeah. her gloves off and smiling and like so comfortable. And and there's only that one basically montage of her acts where we yeah. see that. Well, and that, she and we'll was that to, person we'll to, the whole time. We'll get to the strip because the strip had, had a lot of different versions over mm -hmm. the years. Uh, they, we'll get through it. Um, but what I do like about Little Lamb is it is up until Little Lamb, the show is like pe uh, pedal to the metal. Like it is 80 miles per hour. Go, 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 go gadget, go, go, go juice. You know, snorting cocaine, eating nerds every five seconds. Like everyone's got a lot of energy. It's a lot of lot of plot, a lot of time going by. And Little Lamb is the first time where we stop for a second and realize like these are human beings. And not only that, like perhaps the most neglected person in the show and sort of the butt of the joke until then is probably the one who feels the most. And all these things that Rose does that we laugh at, like, you know, like the fake rape, like um, uh, the way she like cringingly writes and directs her little daughter to be, you know, Shirley Temple on meth. She, we laugh at all these things. We're like, oh, well, that's Rose. She's consistent. And then with Little Lamb, we're like, oh, she fully forgot. Like she didn't forget her daughter's birthday. She gave her daughter a half-assed birthday with the a gift prop. that was self <laughs> With a, with a gift that was self-serving and then forgot because something more important came along. Um, and that, and not only did her mother, but like everyone else in her life, her sister, the boy she kind of likes, uh, everyone. And it's just sort of, it's sad. And I, and it's sort of like the another suitcase in another hall situation where like in that, with that song in Evita, another suitcase in another hall is the only time where we ever go, oh, Evita Perón like did bad things to people who had like thoughts and feelings. Yeah. Uh, everything else Ava does in Evita, it's like, oh, you know, she said that bitchy thing. Oh, that's fun. But another suitcase in another hall, you're like, oh, this is a person whose life is now ruined because Ava had to get her way. And then my life is ruined because I have to listen to Little Lamb. 
I like it. That song was was cut out of town because Jerome Robbins like the show's too long. And when he wouldn't put it back in the show, Julie Stein stomps on stage during a rehearsal and he goes, Mr. Robbins, it has come to my attention. I'm making him sound like the queeniest of queens. He was a straight man, but still. In my mind, in my mind, he's like, Mr. Robbins, it has come to my attention that you will not put Little Lamb back in the show. So I have packed up my score in my suitcase. I'm taking it back to New York with me. And I will sue if this production tries to use any of my score until Little Lamb is put back in. I would just like to state, I'm not trying to say like, I know as a composer, it's always like, well, you're not fucking better than like, obviously I'm not. These feelings of vitriol that I have are entirely directed at only Little Lamb. Just Little Lamb. Just Little Lamb. It is It is perhaps the most divisive song in this show. And well, I it's would- It's just like wish, fish, lamb, am. Like he's not giving credit to the fact that like, you're saying she doesn't sing her like, her like deeper thoughts. And I respect that. But it's so simplified that I don't trust that he gave yes. Louise her due. Well, so I think if, if Gypsy was- more focused on Louise because Gypsy is this weird show where it's focused on Rose for so long and then act two all of a sudden becomes all about Louise yeah and, but she's still such a wallflower until she's like <laughs> yeah her 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 growth is slow and then it just like bursts open and it's sort of the one thing about the show that's hard to buy and why so many Louises have a hard time with the strip because yeah. they they don't really lay those breadcrumbs as you said like to show what she's going to become as Gypsy Rose Lee we don't see her ever really crack a joke. We see her be funny to the audience, like when she shuts the phone off in Grant Singer's office. And like she, there are moments where what she says and does is funny to the audience, but it, she's not necessarily cracking a joke. She's not showing intelligence. We then have um, yet another gaslighting song called You'll Never Get Away From Me, yeah. which is they're at a Chinese food restaurant the night before they're auditioning for Mr. T.T. Grant Singer at his palace in New York. It's like, this is going to be really the big break. They're going to have a New York residence and June's going to officially become a star. He's essentially like a Ziegfeld. That's what we are made to understand. He's like that kind of producer, this guy. And Herbie basically says to Rose, like I, you said, when I got June booked on the Orpheum circuit, you would marry me. And I, what else? Like if, if I don't get married to you soon, I'm going to leave. And Rose basically sings this song where she it's a sweet song and it's and you see them have chemistry together which is great but she's using her chemistry to get him to stay yeah they're good friends they're like they would have been a good team if she'd been honest about their relationship if she was honest that she's a lesbian yeah she was like i'm never gonna be romantically interested in you but like let's be great friends who work together forever well that's and i think we talked on this earlier that's sort of the complicated things i do think she has some romantic feelings towards Herbie, but I also think she likes more what he can get for her. And in the context of the show, not in the context of Real Rose, where Real Rose is not a part of the show. If Real Rose was a part of the show, there would be a dead girl buried on a farm because that I'm actually happened. very interested in that real, yeah. We'll that... get to that with a legacy because Gypsy I'm- too. <laughs> Gypsy too. Gypsy 2. Lesbian suicide. <laughs> no, lesbian homicide. <laughs> it's even better it's every night homicide. it changes every night it shows every... a different version of what could have happened it's the edwin drood of... the audience decides if it was it's a suicide or homicide you could say hey here's your hat but a little Stop me now. Ah. 
one fun fact about this song, you'll never get away from me. Oh, we also learned there is a depression and that vaudeville's like kind of slowly dying and Rose won't hear of it. She's like, no, vaudeville isn't going away. June's going to be a star in vaudeville. And Herbie's like, there's a depression vaudeville and there's now radio and silent movies are coming in. Like vaudeville is dying. And like Rose sings, you'll never get away from me. And this was one of the few songs in the show where the melody came first. And it was a trunk song of Julie Stein's that was originally called uh, Why Did You Have to Take So Long? That was going to be for a movie called Pink Tights that never got made. So Sondheim's like, great, I'll write a new lyric for it because no one ever did the song. The show opens on Broadway. It's a huge hit. And they're at the opening night party. And someone's like, Steve, like, how did Julie get you to convince you to add lyrics to that song? He's like, oh, well, no one ever did. Why did you ever, uh, why did you take so long? And they go, no, I'm talking about In Pursuit of Happiness. And they go, what? And apparently there was a TV musical version of the movie Ruggles of Red Gap, which is just about a British butler for like a Western family. It's crazy. And some of these some of these stories that were produced back in the day, Preston, I'm like, you know what? Finding Neverland is not so weird <laughs> when you think about it. Um, but it's a song called I'm in Pursuit of Happiness. And it's like, I'm in pursuit of happiness in pursuit of ha-. Yeah. But that's like really the only line that was ever uh, used, the only melody line. But Sondheim was furious afterwards. He's like, what? I told Julie no trunk songs that were previously produced. So that's the only one. Trust is key. So then they do the act for Mr. T.T. Grantsinger and it's Dainty June and her farm boys. And the set opens and it's a farm with all these extra farm boys. And for a second you think, oh great, a new number. You hear the do, 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 do. But nope, they go right into. June does the act with the cow. She has a true friend named Caroline where Louise plays the front end of the cow and sings the moo 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 moo, which it's one of my favorite jokes in the show where all Louise's lines are just moo 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 moo. Whatever your thoughts are on Patty Lapone Gypsy and my thoughts run the gamut. The number one thing that revival left us with that is amazing and should be canon forever is Laura Benanti's line readings of Mamu Mamu. Yes, because she's trying to find the like sarcastic. It's not even of Louise. I think the like it's not even sarcasm. It's literally it's highlighting how little talent Louise has. Like Louise can't even bring herself to muster up a real moo or like a cartoony moo. She's like, so most Louises when they're playing the cow. It's like uh, named Caroline Mamu Mamu, and it's funny just to hear a Louise go Mamu Mamu. But Laura Benanti is like, mamu, 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 mamu. Because Louise, Louise doesn't have it in her to actually do a moo. I also feel like she at this point has been like beaten down to think she's so untalented that at this point she's like just serving desperation. She's Louise. like, she's not overdoing it. She's just tired. She has she's ab- like, I suck, mamu, mamu. She has, she's been so beaten into submission. She is, Louise has such Stockholm syndrome. It's crazy. She does. She thinks that her mom's the best. She resents Herbie for like taking her mom's affection when Herbie's really the best thing to ever happen to that family. Beauty and the Beast. Everything's coming up Stockholm Syndrome. (laughs) (laughs) That's forbidden Broadway. Yes, it is. So they do the act. Louise is the cow. They They do Broadway, which is also, I love Broadway. That song slaps and allows Danny June to just belt her face off. They do the bald eagle ending. It's so stupid. She's like, I'm leaving the farm. No, I'm not. Yay. Bald Eagle pops I know out of the when She comes back and she's like, No, I couldn't leave this cow. America. 
<laughs> it's literally, I could never leave this farm. America, it's so good. Incredible. And Gransinger says he's going to take it. And they find out that he only wants the act because he likes Danny June. He's, he's doing it to invest in her to make her a star, but she has to go to school and Rose has to stay away for a year while he works on June. And Rose does not take kindly to that. And this is where we truly learned that Rose doesn't really want what's best for her daughters. She wants what she wants for her daughters and she has to be attached. And it's also where we learn that like neither of them are invested in show business. No, not at all. It like, does have one. If they officially are like, we're not invested. <laughs> I also love, it. I love the interaction between June and Grand Singer's secretary at the beginning of the scene in his office. Cause June's, you know, in her oversized, uh, you know, Shirley Temple outfit. And the nurse secretary says, listen, woman, a woman. How old are you? Oh my God. That back and forth is so funny. It's so good. So such a, such a prime moment of book writing. Nine, nine, what? Nine going on 10. Because how long has that been been going going on? (laughs) Because it's what she's been trained to say because Rose is all about the act and the image and June knows this. So Rose blows it all up and June's one chance to possibly get away from her mother and become a star has been dashed upon the rocks. And it's the only time Louise and June have been really alone for probably a long time. And they and they sort of learn a lot from each other. June sort of realizes how alone her sister has been in all of this and how delusional her sister has been because of it. Because Louise is so desperate for their mother's affection and to be told that she matters, that she kind of goes along with everything. So it's a genuine shock to Louise to hear that the act isn't good. Mm-hmm. Um, and not only that the act isn't good, but that June has always known that the act is bad, has known from since they were a child. And they kind of finally find middle ground in the fact that they just want their mom to like marry her or June wants her to marry her to marry Herbie. Louise is like, can she just marry someone who's not in show business? <laughs> and, you know, have her for Louise, it's like mama can get married and she and I will live in a house together and we'll be a family. And June's like, she'll get married and leave me the fuck alone. But I think there's so much with Louise. Louise is a watcher for so much of Act Two, but there are cracks into her psyche that are just so wonderful to see. The trick is you really can't play the vulnerability, which is something that I think a lot of we, of Louise's have done, is like the, I'm just a awkward young child. Yeah. And that's what makes her actually more uninteresting. You have mm-hmm. to play her straight. Really liking Laura Pulver's uh, Louise. Oh, I do. I love Laura Pulver. I, I don't revisit. like her Louise. I have to revisit that performance. I really like, I really like that whole production. The Imelda Staunton production? Yeah. Oh, that's bold. Yeah. I, I loved what Imelda Staunton was giving me. Okay. We'll get to that. So, but just remember, guys, Preston doesn't like Little Lamb, but he loves Melta Staunton's Gypsy. So How did you get to? I really like that production too. He loves Melta Staunton's Gypsy. I really like it. So, but she's very different. I'm assuming very that different. you. I'm assuming you really like Lord of the Rings. Then, um, I just watched it all for the first time this year. And did you like it? I thought it was fun. So you're saying that you saw Gollum and you went, I would love to know what Gollum's rose would look like, which is why you like Imelda Staunton's Gypsy. That is so mean. 
my God, some of her line readings, I'm like, it's the exorcist up in here. That's fair. And I've only seen it once except for some of her performances. I think what I love about Imelda Sott and Gypsy is, or like specifically like the culmination of her arc is it's a Rose who is truly accepting that she is done. Like that is, has, is, 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 has almost coped with that in a way where she's now just like grieving that it will never happen for her, that this it is one true. thing will never. And she's so angry and I haven't seen that anger from any Rose. So do I like, is that the best version of Rose? Like, no. But when watching a lot of Rose's turns and getting to someone who's just like, who's expressing that, that bitterness at losing your dream, I thought was very authentic. That's fair. I mean, it is definitely the most bitter Rose I think I've ever seen. But like we said earlier, when you put too much cynicism on that role, it just becomes, for me, it becomes almost unwatchable. I do understand yeah. it translated better on stage than when it was filmed, but we'll see. Um, we'll see. We won't see. We don't have, we can't see that on stage. You don't know. You don't know what I'm capable of. Okay, time traveler. Let's so if Mama Was Married happens, I love that song. It's a, it's a lovely moment. One of the few embellishments that Arthur Lawrence did in the Lapone revival of staging that I really liked was having them end holding their hands together and it was oh, actually yeah. like June grabs Louise's hand and Louise like acknowledges that they're holding hands and that's how the song ends it's really nice yeah um, it's a sisterly moment yeah we then go into all I need is the girl which is we flash forward a couple of weeks later and we find out that the act has not been doing so well mostly because vaudeville is dying they have like all these long layoffs and one of the boys in the act tulsa appropriately named i believe because they picked him up in tulsa uh it's still unclear how all the how all the boys get their names but we'll see he's practicing an act of his own and herbie informs the audience through dialogue that though they were not doing well the act is slowly picking up and he's aware that the boys in the act are getting antsy and are probably gonna quit soon but Louise covers for Tulsa and says, oh, he's just practicing some footwork and I won't, you know, it's all good. And we still, we see yet another moment of tension where Louise doesn't truly trust Herbie because he's in show business, um, which that's really the moral of Gypsy. Don't trust nobody in show business. And Tulsa does the act for Louise. And this is both one of the most exhilarating numbers and the most heartbreaking numbers ever. Because you watch this guy plan out his act for what he thinks is just a really engaged audience and it's actually somebody who wants more than anything to join the game it's hard to explain because a lot of it is so visual a lot it of it really, is so visual. it depends on how it's like in the movie i really don't think that you get that from it no because the movie doesn't fo- the movie doesn't focus on louise as much in this in the number yeah, they it's... in both movie versions they really focus on tulsa which is a shame because I, they're of the bootlegs that are captured of all the Broadway gypsies, whoever films it is keenly aware that Louise is very important to it because every time Louise's physical actions start to happen, the camera ha- it manages to be both on her and Tulsa. And I'm like, without fail, every time there's a gypsy when no, they're, they, like they're coming on. For Louise. Yeah, it's always justice for Louise because he's the whole number is how Tulsa is has his act planned out. He just needs the girl to finish the act with him. And we already know that Louise kind of has the hots for Tulsa or whatever her version of the hots are and wants to be involved in everything and never really gets to be. So when it gets to the part of the number, see the whole, the whole first part of the number is him doing his bit. And then the girl enters, imagine, you know, and we imagine her. And then behind him, he's not even watching her, but we see Louise like slowly do the movements that he's describing as the girl and and it's that thing where you if you don't comment 
on how heartbreaking it is, just play it. We will find it heartbreaking. And now the tempo changes. And all the lights come up. And I filmed for the finale. I mean, it's tough because, yeah, sometimes it's so unfocused on Louise. You're like, this is a nice song. And this in the movie like, still says delightfully gay. Um, so many no, delightfully gay I was watching gay it last night, I was like, oh, like the warmth that Tulsa is communicating. I was watching Tony Yazbek, correct? Yeah. And, he's, um, yeah, he's the Lapone. And then David Bertka, Mr. Neil Patrick um, Harris, is Bernadette's Tulsa. Speaking of delightfully gay. Delightfully gay. I was very moved by how he was communicating with Louise because we have not seen Louise have a lot of like warmth and it was a version of show business that was so energetic and so engaged and friendly that it was like I don't know I was glad that she was experiencing that for a moment yeah and because Louise then fully joins in what is sort of in a way that a, a dance number doesn't have to go through major pyrotechnics to be a showstopper or to even like be exciting because yeah. the choreography in this number is not the most elaborate especially because Louise does have to join in at the end and Louise famously has doing the like little, like, I don't know what yeah, that's called. You know the what I mean. Charleston doing. and the slides. Yes. Yeah, the arm slides. Um, and because she just takes over and he sees and he says like, Louise, that's it. And she joins him <laughs> and the music is so exciting and they're doing it together and you see her joy in doing it. And he's so, he's having a blast because like he gets to do the number with somebody for the first time. And she has a great, as you said, great human interaction. And the number ends, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. The number ends and you're like, ah, oh, that was wonderful. Like what a great moment for Louise. And then they pull the rug out from under her and just stab you in the heart nine times. Almost too shockingly, I would say. Ah, it definitely <laughs> comes, it's so out of nowhere that it makes you go, how dare you? But it works so well that you're like, how dare you? Yeah, I do think, it would have been great to see one moment of like him and June. No, no. I think it works better to have it be such a shock. I, I know what you mean, but I think there's something about how June's life is so separate from Louise's and mm. it's, and just like, and because it, because the characters on stage are so blinded by this. So essentially we flash forward right at a train station. None, none of the boys are coming. Two boys are, all the boys are leaving the act. June hasn't shown up yet. Louise hasn't shown up yet. Louise runs on stage with a note from June. For the for Rose, and we find out that June eloped with Tulsa, or rather, they got married in secret three three weeks prior, and have have left that day to yeah. start their own act on on the road. And uh, heartbreaking moment when the boys were like, "It's a swell act, right, Louise?" And she goes, "I haven't seen it." And Herbie tries to convince Rose, "Well, let's just have a life. Let's get out of show business. It's going to be fine." Which is that's what breaks Louise, and she's like, "Oh my God, Herbie, yes, take it, take us now. Let's run away from here." Does Rose sign on to that plan, Preston? Yes, the end. <laughs> end of show. So they walk into Rose, the Rose gets therapy and medication and everything's better. And everything's better. You know, um, Rose has a plan B. Which is? She's going to get, she's going to make Louise what she wants her to be. Or she's going to try. And she's going to she, make her a star. She's going to just understudy June with her daughter. Yes. Um, it's this, there's this moment Rose has this whole monologue about how she's used to people walking out. She mentions her mother again. 
how her mother walked out, the previous husbands. Now, now June has walked out and all of a sudden, this is really where Rose, we get the first hint of crazy with Rose. And she gets so delusional about how she's going to, she, the only thing that kept Louise from being a star is that she pushed her aside for June. All she needs is Rose to, to coach her. And then Louise will be important and be a star and we'll, and we'll be back again. It's all going to be good. And it's this exhilaratingly terrifying number titled everything's coming up roses it's so funny because i was just watching ethel merman's recording of it which is just like a live performance on a television show yeah. and w- when removed from the context it's like a very hopeful song like it seems like it could be at the beginning of the show like a down on our luck like and then when in context you're like oh my god <laughs> That's why context is key. Context is key. Is key. Um, Julie Stein came from that old school world of showbiz where it was like the songs you wrote for the show, you also wanted to become standards on the radio later and have mm. people cover them. So Sondheim loves to talk about with small worlds. Julie Stein balked when he, uh, there was the lyric, I'm a woman with children. And Julie Stein was like, well, then Sinatra's never going to sing it. <laughs> like, Oh, yeah. Like huh. Sinatra will never cover it now. I was and like, Bieber will never cover this no. one. Sondheim was like, I don't care. Uh, but with everything's coming up roses, I do think that was sort of in Stein's mentality of like, I need to, we need to make this dramatically compelling, but also give Merman a nightclub piece for the rest of her years. Yeah. Yeah. The other note about this song that's fun is Jerome Robbins, who was one of the, truly one of the few theatrical geniuses we've ever had. We've had many a brilliant intelligent talented person work in the theater but when i say genius i'm talking like maybe five people total um because robbins was notoriously not an intelligent person was not very smart but was a genius and this is an example of where he was a genius but not smart because sondheim was trying to come up with a term that could be this all-encompassing term of like everything's going to be great and he like had to coin a phrase so he thought everything's coming up roses that's a great line and everyone's like i love it i love it i love it so he and julie stein and arthur lawrence perform the song for Jerome Robbins in London where Jerome Robbins is setting up the company, the London company of West Side Story. And they play the song for him and Jerome Robbins goes, I don't get it. And they go, what do you mean? He goes, everything's coming up roses what? And he thought, he thought they meant roses as in R-O-S-E apostrophe S like because her name is Rose. Uh, we then open to act two. We're in the desert. It's been a little while later. And once again, Rose is doing the same old act with this time with new people, Louise and her Tori adorables, which is, I think what makes this number not offenses, uh, not offensive is how offensive it is to Latin culture because Rose knows absolutely nothing about Latin culture. I no, I've already referenced Sharpay. I don't think we did it while we were recording. <laughs> I've already referenced Sharpay once while talking to you. Bob to the, the top. Uh, Bob to the top and Huma Huma Nukunukapua. We were like, why can they only perform terrible cultural appropriation songs? But it's so inappropriate where you're like, I think it's supposed to be very bad. Yeah, it's not like, it's one thing. It would be one thing if the number was, they're like, we're, we're honoring Latin culture. And it's like them doing Saludos Amigos. It's very, I mean, I think Rose thinks what she's doing is cute. It's meant to, it's meant to be 
obvious to the audience that like the number not only is the number terrible it is the most offensive appropriation of latin culture it, like you could think of uh, like everything you could think of is in there the Olay the sombreros like it's just bad it's all just bad but it works again because it's so bad and because they're so terrible at it and Louise tries to do the split with a blonde wig on Olay everybody my name uh, uh my name is Louise what is yours and they're Madame Rose's Tori Adorables it's just gross it's wonderful it's a mess. yes and Louise finally convinces Rose I'm not June don't make me be June and Herbie's like, Vaudeville's dead. I can't get us a booking anywhere. And so they sing a song called Together Wherever We Go, which is the second gaslighting song of the show. It comes close to be because two of them are in on the right dream. It becomes close to like sucking Rose in, but it's like she's on the wrong page. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we're gonna go through it together. Wherever we sleep, if prices are steep, we'll always sleep cheaper together. In the same way that Rose gets Herbie to continue going with, you'll never get away from me. It's her way of being like, listen, Louise, Herbie, I know you hate this and everything about what I'm doing right now, but listen, let me sing to you and you'll be okay. You'll be on board for another 30 minutes of, of stage time. It's worked before. <laughs> It has worked before and it worked, it worked again. They decide to keep Louise a brunette, make all the other girls blondes, Hollywood blondes, uh, Rose's Hollywood blondes. And they go, how about Rose Louise's Hollywood blondes? And this is important because it comes back later in the show. So they get, they finally get a booking. It turns out to be, it's in a burlesque house. What is a burlesque house? Preston. It's like a, um, closer to a strip club then. Yes. But it's not really It's like a performance performance-based it's like a performance-based are we talking about like what it is like now no what it was are you looking then. for the standard are you looking at like the standard definition of burlesque because like i'm not quite sure I, I need you to give me a textbook answer right here right now that yale university would be proud of it's a little sexier than other forms of performance <laughs> there's is- an element of um of um titillation <laughs> Emphasis on the tit. It's, <laughs> would you say that's fair? Fair. It's, um, yeah, burlesque is essentially, it's, I mean, if you were to compare it to vaudeville, which is, you know, a bunch of different acts, scenes, whatever, that aren't really connected, burlesque is all of that, but like X-rated. So you have women in their underwear dancing. You have, whereas like vaudeville is humor that's like, you know, cute burlesque is more Let's sexual innuendo. My banana peel, yeah. Yeah, and talking about your junk and things like that. It's it's debauchery is what it is. Let's be clear. All of these things are art. Like, we're not, like, these are artful crafts. We're, yes. What I, would argue, artists. what I would argue is with when Gypsy Rose Lee got into the game of stripping, that is when stripping became started to become an art form. I think no one really thought of it as such. And yeah, I don't it was think definitely people, looked down on. And I don't think the people who did it thought of it as, as an art, really. They thought of it as a living and a way to sort of yeah. do something. It has evolved to be more reclaimed, I think, than it was at this point. Exactly. They get booked into a burlesque house by mistake. And Rose is embarrassed and refuses to perform there. And Louise, this is where Louise really comes into her own because she grabs yeah. all the Hollywood blondes. She's like, go to the dressing room, put your stuff in, don't talk to anybody. And she tells Rose, like, we have no money. We need this gig. Shut up, we're doing this gig. And Rose, for the first time, relents. 
and it's to her daughter, which is really fun to watch. And it took a long time, but we got there to uh, to Louise putting her foot down or something. Yes, and we think Rose is fine. We think Rose is turning, but she doesn't turn just yet. No, it's not. One could say Rose is turning. <laughs> not just yet. Not yet. But so she, Rose finally agrees. She's going to marry Herbie. She says, we're going to get married at the end of this gig in two weeks. We're going to do it. And all seems well. Louise meets some of the resident strippers, Tessie Tora, Mazeppa, and Electra, and they tell her, you don't need talent to be a stripper. You just need something to make you special. And that's the first time that something really sinks into Louise. I love that song. That song it's has a, a great special song. place in my heart. Always brings the house down. Yeah. Just three oh, the, knockout performance. If you were to play either of those three strippers, who would it be? Not the third one. Not Tessie with the ballet? No. I would play the trumpet one. Yeah. Part of me wants the trumpet, Mazeppa, because she has the most solo. Part of me wants Electra because A, I love Electra's entrance. I love how the orchestra goes into that. Ba-da-da-da-da-da. But also, Electra's gimmick is my favorite of all the gimmicks with the with the lights on her. I, it's just such a great visual gag. They're really, it's a seamless trio. That song it's a like, one. Oh, is always going to work. It's all, no matter who does it, yeah. it could always work. Literally anyone could do it. Do something special. We cut to the end of the two weeks. They're finishing up their act. Oh, another thing is uh, Louise agrees to do scene work for the burlesque for extra money, which I really like. That's where she sort of shows some gumption. She's like, I can read lines. I can do scenes. I don't care what it is. Just give me the money. And then she also is making costumes for Tessie Tour and I think some of the other strippers uh, because they see how good her handiwork is. Flash forward two weeks later, they're coming to the end of the act. I love the like little... Uh, the little touch that Tessie Tora and one of the Hollywood blondes end up getting along so well by the end of the first, end of the two weeks because at the beginning they're like odd couple I'm me and you're you but at the end of two weeks like they're really good friends and I'm like I love that I love women getting along on stage it's so nice to see Gypsy gives you eight minutes <laughs> Gypsy gives you eight women. minutes of women getting along on stage but you know what that's eight minutes more than Evita true not gonna pass the Bechtel test Rose is weirdly getting depressed about marrying Herbie and leaving show business until she overhears that this star stripper at the end of the show got busted for solicitation and can't perform and Rose jumps at the chance to have Louise do it because it's the star billing and finally someone in her family is a star and that is the breaking point for Herbie like if you're just joining us that's important to rose (laughs) it's very important if you've just tuned in being (laughs) a star is very important to rose big plot points yes her daughter is being famous and herbie says that is the end of this i'm out and he leaves and famously when rose says why does everybody leave and he says well maybe louise won't and truly louise won't leave louise is the one that sticks around and there's a great moment where louise gets all done up because she does it to appease her mother and she gets all done up. She looks in the mirror and sees that she's what? A pretty girl, mama. She's a pretty girl. She's a pretty girl, mama. She fully sings I Feel Pretty. I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's her inner monologue. It's It would be like if I Feel Pretty were a ballad, that would be <laughs> Louise's inner monologue. And she goes to do the strip and the announcer gets her name wrong because 
uh, when Tessie Torres is talking to Louise at first and the act's name is Rose Louise and her Hollywood Blondes. And Louise says, oh, my grandpa says we've traveled around the country like gypsies, which is something you don't say flippantly anymore, Louise. Get with it. Get on top of it. Get with the program. How dare you? We are here to cancel Gypsy today. <laughs> we're here, no, we're here to cancel Louise. <laughs> Louise fully needs to be canceled. Yes. And, time to do it. It's long and, past time. Long time. And Tessie Torres says, well, if you want my advice, Miss Gypsy Rose Louise, say that's a good name if you ever pick up stripping. So when Louise does do the strip, she gives the announcer that name. The announcer gets it wrong and calls her Gypsy Rose Lee. And this whole enactment is not real. It's not true. Arthur Lawrence said, hey, Gypsy, how'd you get into stripping and she goes oh honey i've made up like 30 different accounts of the story give it get, tell your own story i'm sure it'll be better so he did good on her she is she iconic we love her we stand a legend this strip is interesting because we see a that louise is nervous we also see like her lack of talent and original lack of intuition as she just like stands stock still and sings the old let me entertain you number which is a master class in how to take a song that's like annoyingly cute into like weirdly vulgar by just simply changing the tempo and the context oh yeah that one's easy yeah so Sondheim said that the lyric for this song came about because he was he was supposed to write a song for the strip and a song for baby june and he's like i really hate writing songs that have nothing to do with plot i hate performance numbers and he's like i don't know how to write this lyric and jerome robbins jerome robbins was like i don't know like have have baby june sing something like i don't know let me entertain you and sometimes like i guess and he writes it and he goes say if you slow this down this could also work for louise's strip he goes great two and one i don't have to write two songs We love, we love that. I love, he was just like, it was purely economical. I didn't want to write two numbers. I love that device. Ain't nobody got time for that. We stand a reprise. So Louise starts the strip. She dips, she panics when she's told she has to take something off and Rose tells her to take a glove. And she is, she shouts, say something, hello. And the heat of motion, she goes, hello. And then weirdly kind of comes into her own when she realizes she has the audience's attention. Like all of a sudden people are paying attention and she realizes she exists. And she comes into her own by the end of the number. And then we have a montage where she grows as Gypsy Rose Lee. Thoughts on this montage, Preston? It's too fast. It's a great montage. You get like one number where she becomes very famous. Yeah. One thing I'll say about Laura Palver's Louise is physically she doesn't have Louise be super elegant Gypsy Rosalie until the very end. Yeah. She does like the the patter that Louise does, but her physicality is still like tomboy-y Louise. So you're like, so you see her progress. Yeah. Laura Benanti basically like by the end of the first strip, she walks on for two, three, and four. And she's like, I got this. Yeah. You can I'm really the- feel the established energy she has yeah because i think so originally the strip had no dialogue in it it was just a sequence of visual strips and you can even and you can see sort of what that looked like in the movie because that's what natalie wood does it's just like a series of strips and then when they were reviving it and we'll get to this with the legacy arthur lawrence was like i really want to add some dialogue because gypsy rose lee talked like she made jokes she and she like we had a dialogue with the audience so he does and i think where he failed was he doesn't have the dialogue show growth it, you, you are made to understand with each passing strip, she's becoming more famous, but you don't see her becoming better. It's basically she becomes good by the second strip. I feel a little differently. I feel like you see her become more confident with her comedy and become more confident with her body and her energy. So it's not like she becomes monu- like different, but she just it's like the confidence dial turns up. 
Yeah, I think I would argue that's something that the actress has to bring to it. I don't think it's necessarily in the text. That is, that is true. Yes. I think with the final <laughs> script, with the, with the Agdesiast monologue, it's, you know, it's longer. She takes more of her time and there's definitely a, a better confidence there. But I would argue that the two preceding strips that link up to it, I don't think the text provides you with, she's figuring it out. It's she, the actress. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. It's a performance thing. Yeah. And the actress has to figure it out, which some actresses do, some actresses don't. But that was something that took a long time. I'm sure my mother did. I'm sure your mother did it beautifully. (laughs) She did it beautifully, honey. Um, This, I mean, honestly, that strip is one of the reasons why I would love to play Louise. That and all I want is the girl. Like I love to be a character that reacts to something, which is why I would love to be Louise and all I want is the girl. And also you don't dance till the very end. 54 below 2022. Listen, let's get it done. Bucket, bucket. So Louise becomes extremely, extremely famous. She is really the only one left in Rose's life who still talks to her, but even she is not really talking to her. She puts a sign up backstage. Rose is not allowed. They have an all out brawl. Uh, The famous, I said, turn it off. Some actresses go Medea, some actresses don't. It's up to you. <laughs> so choose your own adventure. Yeah, it's a long scene. It's a good scene, but it's a long scene. Mm-hmm. And has sort of, and basically is the moment where Rose is officially pushed out and has a great clapback where Rose, Vogue is coming to photograph Louise. And right as Rose is about to leave, she goes, I want to know. You said I worked my whole life. I worked your whole life. What, what did I do it for all the saving? How do we get from one town to the next? All the, what did I do it for? And what does Louise say? You. No, right? she, I thought, no oh. she says, no, it's, it's better than that. She didn't say, it, it would be funny if she was like, what are you talking about, you bitch? She says. <laughs> that was my inner monologue. Yeah. That <laughs> Louise says, I thought you did it for me, mama. Oh, yes, you're right. Yeah. The subtext was you. The subtext is you. The dialogue is, I thought it was for me. That's what you always said, right? True. And that like knocks Rose flat on her ass to bring her on stage to have what I think is a very reasonable coming to terms of everything she's gone through in the preceding two and a half hours, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah. I I think it's perfect. (laughs) It is called Rose's Turn. And this song was originally supposed to be a ballet. You know this, right? No. Okay. Listen, listen. What, what in the tuck everlasting are you talking about? Oh my God. Who was I just, oh, I was, I was having a coffee date with a friend of mine who's also going to be on the podcast and Tuck Everlasting came up and I said, Tuck Everlasting has a big problem in that the original production had the most unnecessary ensemble of all time. It is a six-person musical that had a 20-person dancing ensemble that did not. And, oh, did they dance? And they danced every time. It would be like, pass me the butter, and the dancing ensemble would come on to pass the butter for the other this person. This is not an exaggeration. <laughs> Everyone really? did not I'm about. not exaggerating. It was the most useless ensemble I've ever seen. That choreographer Talent- worked. Yes. Talented ensemble that danced their asses off and danced beautifully, but I, the dancing was ultimately pointless. But yes, it wasn't the tuck everlasting. Um, it was supposed to be a ballet that was like supposed to encompass all the characters of the show that passed through Rose's life. They're getting into rehearsals. The number hasn't really been arranged yet. And Jerome Robbins is like, I'm too busy and I don't know how to make this work. Plus like Merman in a ballet, go fuck yourself. Yeah. He's like, Steven, you come up with something. So basically what happened was that night, Jerome Robbins and Steven Sondheim stayed in the, in the rehearsal room, which was, excuse me, which was the upstairs theater of the then abandoned New Amsterdam theater. And basically spent all the way into the night mapping out Rose's turn, which they decided rather than be a ballet, 
that covered all the characters, it was going to be a song that sort of rehashed all the songs in the show. So we have mega mix. A mega mix, so to speak. We have Everything's Coming Up Roses, Baby June and Her Newsboys, Mr. Goldstone, things like that. And Mama's Talking Soft, which is not in the show anymore. And it's both a meltdown, a performance piece, and like a fuck you to everybody until she gets to the mama section and she can't get past the word mama because she knows that as the mother, she has to let go, but her own mother let go of her. It works on so many levels. One might say it's complex. No. No. <laughs> it's aggressively simple. No, it's incredibly complex. Never ever do improvisation with Pres- Preston Max Allen. He will not yes and you ever once in his life. Excuse me, I was deeply no node during an improv scene once and it has stayed with me. I was using a phone in the, if you know improv, you know you're not supposed to use like a hand phone. Yeah. Using the like ear to the hand phone and clearly using a phone. And my partner went, I don't know what that is. What is that? That's not a cell phone. And I was like, in the most personal sense, fuck you. (laughs) (laughs) Sir, sir, Sir or madam, I don't know you or your journey, but all I can say is, Go fuck yourself with the, fuck with a spike dildo, please. Thank you with, so much. With my hand phone. <laughs> <laughs> with my hand. Oh, this isn't a hand phone, but this is a giant fist that's going up to your butt <laughs> to my shoulder. That would have been a better response. I think I just like felt really embarrassed. Oh, I'm sorry. I was 19 as a child. You know who's also embarrassed? Rose. Rose. <laughs> I, I, love, I love this song so much. I really do. I do too. So not a controversial opinion. Not a controversial opinion. It's a phenomenal star turn song. And so many layers to it. You can play so many different kinds of things, and so many different actresses have brought new things to it. I had a dream. I dreamed it for you, June. It wasn't for me. For me. And if it wasn't for me, then where would you be? Miss Gypsy Rosalie. Well, someone tell me, when is it my turn? Don't I get a dream for my we have the final scene where louise and rose kind of finally come to terms rose says i did do it for me i just wanted to be noticed louise says like i wanted you to notice me i know rose starts to cry in louise's arms and louise says it's okay mama it's okay rose and rose Louise says, you're going to come with me to this fancy party I'm going to. You'll take my mink uh, or t- you'll take my fur. I have a stole. And they they start to go off together. And Rose says, yet, yet again, I had a dream last night. Uh, we, we were It was an ad we were doing together. And it says, Madam Rose. And then she puts her hand above her name and says, and her daughter, Gypsy. And that's the end of the show. And they go off stage together. Or is it the beginning of Gypsy 2, Lesbian Homicide? Lesbian Homicide. That is the beginning of Gypsy 2, Lesbian Homicide. First scene, yeah. It starts with Rose's turn. Yeah, that is what they were doing, and nobody picked up the the cue. So, such a shame. Um, As Like I said, Gypsy opened to Super Ray Reviews. Um, A Sophisticates Dream said The World Telegram and Sun. Walter Kerr, who is notoriously difficult to please, said it's the best damn musical I've seen in years. Uh, Gypsy was nominated for, uh, I believe, eight yeah eight Tony Awards for the 1960 Tony Awards. Do you know how many it won, Preston? Zero. Zero. It won absolutely nothing. I uh, yeah, that was not well received as in award land. It was not. It and it not only did it come out the same year as Sound of Music, 
it lost Best Musical to Sound of Music and that classic Fiorello that everybody does all the time. Everyone loves Fiorello. <laughs> Fiorello's turn. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, seeing it now, I'm like, yeah, Sound of Music is so safe. That, it like, is. Obviously, that's what people gravitated towards, but... It was, yeah, it was safe and people knew what they were getting with it. And it was a big crowd pleaser. It was a singing nun with singing children. I think the amount of women in Gypsy also was probably intimidating to people. And they were like, there's, yeah. a, man, there's a strong man in Sound of Music and we need that. We have a man who changes in Sound of Music. Gypsy's yeah. about a woman who kind of almost changes, but not really totally. No, a woman in charge <laughs> of something. Never, never, not once. No, yeah, so. Gypsy... Basically, like Gypsy was really well received and heralded when it came out. But then the interesting thing with Gypsy is that whereas West Side Story was like kind of a decent hit and then the movie came out and it exploded, Gypsy was thought of as this really amazing musical. And then the movie came out with Rosalind Russell and everyone was like, oh, I guess the show is not that good. Just like Merman made it good. And so what happened was Angela Lansbury did the first revival in 1973, first in London, then on Broadway. It was supposed to be Elaine Stritch, but they couldn't get enough funding with Elaine Stritch. I read that. Oh, yeah. So they were like, sorry, Elaine, we have to let you go. We need to get someone who will pay money to do this. Oh. So it ended up being Angela. And Angela and Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the book, directed that production where he also rewrote the, the strip. And that production is huge in London, comes to the States, is huge in the States. And with each successive revival of Gypsy, it's further cements Gypsy's reputation as like one of the best, if not the best musicals that's ever been written. Again, with the Time Daily revival, the Bernadette Peters revival, Patti LuPone, Bette Midler doing the TV movie, each time it comes back, we're reminded of just how great it is, which is good to see. The yeah. thing with Angela Lansbury, and this is where we're getting into the story with Rose's turn with Oscar Hammerstein, Gypsy's out of town. And they're making all these changes. And originally the number ended on a dissonant note and a low, uh, soul violin. I was going to say either a soul or a loan. And then I did a lull. A lull violin. A little violin. A violin. Like uh, scratching out instead of like this big finale. And then I went into the final scene. And the show would end and it would not get the ovation they thought it deserved. And they're like, we mm -hmm. don't know what's going on. And Oscar Hammerstein comes to see it and he goes... He made like three notes. He was like, oh, the doorknob on the set keeps falling off. Fix that. And he like made one other technical change. He's like, and you have to add a button at the end of Rose's turn. And they're like, no, it's a breakdown. And you said to be true to character and reality and people who have mental breakdowns don't have a button, Oscar. And he said, the audience wants to applaud Merman giving this amazing performance to this song. And because they can't, they're sitting in anticipation for when they can applaud her and they're not listening to the final scene. And the That's final true, scene yeah. and the final scene is what wraps up the show. So you have to give her the applause. So they do, they begrudgingly give her the button, they applaud and they listen to the final scene. But Arthur Lawrence was always pissed. He was like, ah, we sold out. Then with Angela Lansbury, he's like, okay, what if the button happens, she gets the applause. And then Rose starts, uh, and we think Angela Lansbury is taking bows because the people are like cheering for her and she keeps bowing and then the applause starts to die out and she keeps bowing until it's finally out and then she's still bowing and we realize she's bowing to people in her head oh, yeah. and it was a way for arthur lawrence to crack it and like have the mental breakdown but still the button and again like i don't love arthur lawrence i think you know he wrote the one of the best books ever written for gypsy and he did a great job staging it the first couple of times my love for him kind of ends there but <laughs> 
that's but he did crack that and i appreciate him for doing that uh what do you think gypsy sort of leaves behind in musical theater history like what do we take from it what does it give us i think musical theater is a, a risky art and it's not for everyone and i think gypsy is just an example where even if you hate musical theater you can look at it and you can be like oh i i see what this can be when the attention is paid and the team is put together correctly and you tell the story at its apex. Mm-hmm. And a lot of shows are rushed. A lot of shows are stunt, you know, teams are stunt put together and we don't always get to see what the version looks like when, I know these like third, fourth choices, but there's a reason like that Comden and Green passed. They knew they couldn't do it. I think right now you'd never have a songwriting team pass on something like we, you know, we want to jump on the thing. We're not going to admit that we wouldn't be right for it. Like, so I think just all the elements kind of pooled together in a way we don't get very much to make Gypsy exactly how that story should be told with the music that, you know, it, it, it like I said, it always works typically. Um, I'm sure even when my mom did it in high school. And, <laughs> and so I think mom. it's just hard to get all the elements correct. It's the whole, in any art, but it's, I think Gypsy does, does that very successfully. It's so successfully that the themes continue to be relevant. I mean, yeah. it's down to the story. It's down to the fact that those themes are never going to not be important. Yeah. Well, the idea of being recognized, of being loved, of wanting something that maybe you can't have. Gypsy is also an interesting story in that it's a showbiz story about someone who doesn't make it, which like you yeah. never see. Like Louise makes it, Rose doesn't. And Rose is really the one we follow. So it's an interesting trajectory. And I think that's why the... And that's why I have such a strong, that's like why I will judge roses a lot by Rose's turn is because like, I think we're all fascinated by what happens, you know, at the end of the life, mm-hmm. or the end of your life when you, especially with a character like Rose, who is always trying. She is, you know, especially when it's Imelda and she's older. And this is, um, you know, this is it. This She's looking back. Imelda is very successful and has lots of life left in her. But the way she was playing the character was like, this is it. Like, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not going to get it. It's done. You yeah. know until you know she she has that moment at the end but and i think that we want to watch we don't want that to happen to us so to watch it to live vicariously to experience it through someone else is like a version of catharsis or yeah there's a lot of resentment yeah Yeah. uh what was the first gypsy you saw live if you've ever seen gypsy live was it patty i've never seen gypsy live interesting that i think will definitely cue you in onto i don't know roses in the future because i've seen gypsy live three times i saw it with betty buckley i saw bernadette and then i saw patty twice because i saw it right before it opened and i was a little disappointed in the production and then i saw it again because a friend wanted to see it and i was like fine and i have issues with it um basically i said it before with west side story but arthur lawrence towards the end of his career was always very resentful that his co-creators on like gypsy and west side story had these illustrious careers that sort of lived on beyond them like had these legacies that were that people cared about right Mm -hmm. um Jerome Robbins Leonard Bernstein Stephen Sondheim and like Arthur Lawrence was very successful he directed the original Lacage he wrote The Turning Point and The Way We Were uh Oscar nominated writer and you know directed various productions of Gypsy that were very well received, but he never really got the kind of legacy that others did. And I think he always felt like he should have. So he turned to Gypsy and West Side Story, which are his most well-known and respected works and sort of took ownership of them in a way that I think actually has been detrimental to both shows. Um, Cause having watched the 2009 revival of West Side, 
where which took the same approach as his gypsy which was like well the book comes first it's all about the words and i'm like the book in west side is not what people come for and it's not the thing that uh elevates the show i uh, know i only come i'm i'm gonna relocate by the way so i can charge preston's re- is relocating as i continue to talk go. here we go here it's a quick relocation um, but so with Gypsy, with the Patty Lapone one, he was so angry that he did not do the Bernadette Peters revival and claims to have hated everything that they did with it. And I think, I truly think it's because he was not really involved. Sam Mendes apparently like had all these thoughts for it. And then Arthur Lawrence kept cutting him off at the knee. So he only could kind of do half of it. I remember really loving the Bernadette Peters revival. I thought it was, it was both respectful of a lot of stuff while having some interesting twists like Dainty June taking a cigarette out of her dress in Grand Singer's office. Uh, which is, it sounds very like, oh, we're making the show dark. It was played for comedic effect. It's after she goes, well, that's show business, and then opens up her skirt to take out a cigarette. It was funny. Um, the Patty Lapone Gypsy, and if you can watch it on YouTube, everyone in it is very talented, and there are moments that I love. There are By analyzing the text as hard as they did, there are moments where I'm like, that's a great delivery. For example, like the way Leanne Larkin, you know, says to Laura Benanti, like, it's mama's fault you don't have a sister. Like, what, like, what do you mean you don't want her to marry Herbie? Or the way that um, uh, Laura Benanti does the strip or th- things like that, I think are all really great. What bothers me is because we now hold Gypsy to such a high pedestal and because Arthur Lawrence specifically is like, it's because of my book. That revival was very, we are actors. We are actors acting and every line is important. And listen to this line of acting, which. I, I agree. Yeah. I've seen a lot of bootlegs. Don't worry. Um yeah. And the yeah. thing, and I think what I love about watching the the bootleg of the Time Daily revival is I understand where you're coming from because we talked about it before. You said with Time it was a little harsher and a little more like I think you said showy. Is that the right word? No, it's for me. My opinion on Time's Rose comes down to Rose's turn, and I think Rose's turn very interestingly indicates what kind of performer or show business person Rose is, uh-huh. which I started to really kind of clock when I was watching Angela Lansbury. And when I watch Times, I'm like, she doesn't seem to want to perform. Like we have Angela, who's like not a good performer, as like whose Rose obviously wouldn't work in Hollywood. We have yeah. Bernadette, who seems like, or in vaudeville, we have Bernadette, who seems, hello, hero, um, yeah. like sexy. And she yeah. could have maybe done it. And you see that maybe she did get a few comments. Like you can see that she was on the way. And with Tyne, I just like didn't see that there uh, that this was a person who like had a element of of energy for performance. Yeah, I think where you, what you said about Angela is actually, I agree with the Angela Lansbury thing as well. I think I feel the same way about Tyne though. I feel like Tyne's Rose's turn was not so much that she isn't enjoying performing and more like you watch her Rose do Rose's turn with, you know, the bumps and the grinds and you're like, oh, this Rose never would have made it. Yeah. It's the ultimate self-delusion. And I think where it changes and you realize that that's the take on it is when she gets to the mama and she goes, well, why did I do it? What did it get me? You see this fire in her and this anger. And in fact, there's an orchestration that is emphasized in the time one that I love and most recordings don't do it, which is, um, she was like, I had a dream. I dreamed it for you, June. It wasn't for me, Herbie on the, it wasn't for me, Herbie in the, and if it wasn't for me, there's a brass in the orchestra that just slowly goes up the scale louder and louder as she's singing. And it adds this like, I don't know, like this engine that's just going and going. You're like, oh my God, this thing's about to explode. And then it does. Um, Part of that is Eric Stern and his brilliant music direction. Shout out again. Shout Shout out out to Eric Stern, Stern. baby. But 
there is not a single Rose's turn that I dislike. There are Rose's turns that I gravitate towards more. Yes. And I don't dislike Tyne. It was just one where I was like, I cannot tell. I think it's a great moment to see who Rose thought she was as a performer. Yeah. And with Tyne, I didn't get that in the way I got it with Angela and Bernadette. And Patty is too Patty. Patty is literally having, Patty is seeing spirits in her Rose's turn. She's unhinged. She's She's an unhinged Rose, which is not invalid. It's just not my favorite. No, there are Patty Patty isms going on there. Patty is one of those actresses where like there is so much natural charisma and talent like bursting at the seams that left unchecked. And I don't think she does it intentionally. I just think it's when you are when you are filled with so much talent and charisma, it can get away from you sometimes. And especially in a role like Rose that can take such a toll on you. Sometimes it's hard. The lines get blurred of what is where you're in the character and where you're just doing you. Yeah. And I know many people say like, oh, it's just Patty being Patty. I think there are a lot of times in that production where Patty is truly acting. Like, and I don't mean like acting, acting. I mean like she's inhabiting the character. Yeah. But when you see her do like the giggles to herself and the like weird inflections on notes and things like that, it's a it's a representation of that production where it's these super talented, intelligent actors being told you are going to act the best acted version of Gypsy ever. And the like gravit and as someone who has a degree in studying the acting of musical theater. I can tell you left to our own devices, actors can become indulgent and they can become silly and and gross. Even the best of us left unchecked. Yeah. And the Time Daily version, that whole, and it's not just our, it's the whole production, everyone in it. There's such a discipline about it and an understanding that this is an this is a train that has to get somewhere. And we have to kind of go full steam and everyone has to be on board with where it's going and no moment can be wasted. If there's going to be a pause, it's got to be the most justified pause of all time. And the Patty Lapone Gypsy is like, there is a breath in between every word. Yeah, the performer, that version who I who stuck with me the most was June. In the Tyne Daly one or the Patty, the Patty Lapone one? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people like Leon Larkin's performance as June. I like the idea of her June in that one. Oh, wait, um... The link I sent you was when it was at City Center, not when it was at Broadway. I watched one that was on YouTube, ultimately, because it was did on you, my TV. Did you, was it the link that I sent you, or was it- No, you... it was one that was just on Broadway. Okay, then, okay. Because the link I sent you, I sent you I sent you City Center because it was the full show, and it was before it went to Broadway. So... I watched a lot of it, but then, like, when I watched the full thing on my TV, it was a different one. The reason why I sent you the City Center one was because it was before it got a little too We Are Actors. Oh, and then I watched the really weird actors. <laughs> yes. The city center one is where they're like, there, there's still some like pauses here that are kind of s- stupid, but like Leanne Larkin's June, which is sort of just, I'm so over it and I'm tired and I'm bored and I hate it was there, but she wasn't dragging it out as much, which yeah. I'm, I'm not, and I'm not trying to drag her for this. This was the whole production. Everything was like, this one sentence is a three hour monologue. And it's, you know, it's like in The Incredibles where he's like, everyone's special, which means no one is. And it's like, if every line is special, no line is, you know? Yeah. And with with Patty, I would never have gotten like the idea that when she was bowing at the end, I was like, that's Patty bowing for people clapping for her. I was like, that's not Rose reacting to the people in her head. <laughs> no, 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 no. Patty, I, there's truly a moment in that Rose's turn with Patty where I'm like, she sees spirits. She's like, she has little friends who speak to her on her shoulders. Which, like, watching a shit ton of Rose's turns, I'm like, yeah, that's entertaining to watch, but I don't think it's Yeah, well, it falls under the category of, like, are you doing something new for the sake of doing something new? Or is this really what the text is telling you? Because that's, and that's where you kind of have to, like, rope them in. 
I thought that Bernadette and Imelda were in the same camp of Rose energy that I really appreciated. Angela was super unique to me because like in whatever I was watching, like her makeup was a little unkempt, her clothes were, and like, then she was like really like performing this like grown up June. It felt like a grown up baby June act. And I was like enchanted by it being like, oh, she, she thinks that's what performance is. Yeah. It's wild. I was yeah. Like, <laughs> I think Angela's also is a really unhinged Rose's turn, but I think because there's such a narrow focus to it, as you said, like she is performing. The crazy comes from the fact that, as you said, like she thinks this is what performance is. Yeah. And and that's where and you see that reflected in how Baby June performs. Of like that's what Rose has directed her to be. So the crazy is there, and you could argue it's just as crazy as Patty's, but it's so much more narrowly focused that it doesn't feel like okay. It's more like oh wow, uh, which I really appreciate. Bernadette is definitely has that resentful attitude in her Rose's turn, and that like depression and I think because as you said you watch Bernadette do it you watch her bump and grind and you hear her sing and you're like this is a rose who could have made it who probably could have been in burlesque yeah. when Tessie's like oh she would make a great stripper she had the talent and the resentment comes from like the I could have actually done this and I hate that it passed me by well I also feel like with her it's like she just was also never the one who got the call like like she was always you know close yeah. but never booked and I could feel that from her and then that's why like when I watched Imelda I was like oh like this is even more years simmering of never getting the call yeah. I keep aging her so I'm so sorry Imelda Stoughton you're beautiful and age is nothing um age ain't and, nothing but a number and so like I really I really appreciated that angle from it like watching Rose perform and as she saw herself and it was really effective for me Absolutely. Um, yeah, going back for a second to the legacy. Gypsy, weirdly, from a show that was very well received, but like kind of the bridesmaid at the Tony Awards and with the movie and everything has become one of the most revived shows of all time, one of the most um, respected shows. And we weirdly like now have Gypsy fatigue because we've had Gypsy so much. Mm. I think it because it's actually now been 12 years since the patty gypsy closed oh my god so yeah, long i think right. if we just wait like three years it'll be 15 years i would love a tony collette gypsy <gasps> oh my god i would love a tony collette gypsy. what a visceral reaction i had to that Ugh. all right i tweeted yesterday that i wish Shit's creek had had a moira and alexis gypsy, gypsy. yes do i want a moira alexis gypsy or do i want an annie murphy Catherine o'hara gypsy and that is that would be great. Any I either want, any version of that. Present. Why not both? Let's be greedy. Let's this be is greedy. our imaginations after all. And the, I obviously was like looking at the like lists of who should like Stephanie J. Block and Audra, and I was like, great. My and then I like simmered on this because this is this is one of the rapid fire questions. Are we? Yes. Are yes. We it is. Oh, let's, rap, let's, get, I, let's get into the rapid fire questions, honey. Okay. Can I wrap? Can I do it? Can I finally do it? Uh, no, me, I was like, I'm so excited. About I must. I must introduce the rapid fire questions. Uh, first, because that's actually question number two. The first question is the Sondheim yes. rhyme. What is your favorite lyric in Gypsy? It's so basic, and I really kept watching these, being like, "Can I find?" But I really love. It's in Rose's turn. I'm so sorry. I'm a I'm a basic bitch. I'm like, I really love, I had a dream. I dreamed it for you, June. It wasn't for me, Herbie. And if it wasn't for me, then where would you be, Miss Gypsy Rosalie? It's a recap of everything a, she's felt and, and everything she's done. I, honestly, that is probably my favorite lyric too. And if it wasn't for me, then where would you be, Miss Gypsy Rosalie? Well, and then that extra well, and it's just so accusatory and pointed and pained. And I just think like the whole show builds to that line. Yeah. And it's, 
always like, it's always very effectively delivered, even in like my least favorite performances. Yeah. Even well, even the high school roses who are not prepared to pay that role, I'm sure, are delivering that well. <laughs> Bernadette's well is one of my favorite wells, and you, if, when I say when Gypsy pauses, the pause is worth it. Like it yeah. builds up. So really, the first pause is Little Lamb, and that's a moment of introspection. We have other pauses but the other big one is the well in rose's turn and that's when it all sort of that's right before the atom bomb drops and it's fantastic next one is the i had a dream cast and this is who is in your dream cast of gypsy okay i have a couple um roses and i feel that jennifer simmered would give an extremely defining performance Jennifer Samard could play any role uh, in Samard, I'm so sorry. Samard. As far as I'm concerned, she could play. I would love to see. Can we green screen Jennifer oh, Samard to do woman. all three strippers and I and gotta oh, get my. it? There, see, that's what I see. Is like I think that that's the like that's one of the roles she would be cast in. But I think that like she's being underestimated. Oh, she would be a phenomenal role. Like she she saying. would be a rose cover, and I'm like no. Skip that. I'm I'm Crescent. I'm just greedy. I want a rose of Jennifer Samard, and I want her to play all three strippers. I'm glad that's we something to ask for. No, I, th- I think she would do it. I mean, we're in quarantine. She has a green well, screen, I'm sure. That'll actually go into my later question. So Jennifer Savard, who are some yes. other roses for you? Um, I saw Alexander Billings um, do Creep at the Ovation Awards in 2015, mm-hmm. 2016. And it was incredible. And I was like, oh my God, she should be in more things. And as we know, she was morable when Wicked mm-hmm. closed. I think Alexander Billings has an incredible rose that I want to see from her. Are you familiar? Do you know her? I know of her. I've never seen her perform, but I. Oh my god, she's so her creep is incredible. If you can find a video of that, I'll look for it. I'll definitely look. Oh good, yeah. You know what I was thinking of while I was in the shower this morning, which is you know sexy thoughts. I if there was ever a remake of Gypsy, I would. I mean, it would need to be done now, so she's still in the right age bracket for it. And maybe it's just because I was watching Promising Young Woman. I would love to see Carrie Mulligan as Louise. Ooh. Ooh, she'd be very good. I think she'd be a phenomenal Louise. I think she would do the sweet, introspective Louise without being cloying and commenting. And I think she could do the powerful Louise without being like, who's this 180 person? God, that's good. Where does this show rank in the Sondheim canon for you? Oh, okay. Personally, is like as a show that you like and then also where you think it ranks in his works, like objectively speaking. I think it is one of the most incredible musicals that exists. But in terms of like what I listen to, I listen to Company and Sweeney Todd the most from Sondheim. Okay. So would you say, would you put this on the higher tier, but not the number one of his canon then? Like probably basement of the higher tier? I Yes. For me, it's, it's like third of the things I'm going to listen to from Sondheim. It's the little things, AKA there won't be trumpets. How would you downsize Gypsy? First of all, Jennifer Smart is all three strippers. That's one way to do yes. it. <laughs> I, okay, this is more of like a Daniel Fish than like a John. Oh my God, why is his last name escaping me? Tell me his last John name. John Doyle. Yes, John But Doyle. I just, I smiled so hard when you said Daniel Fish. I want to see a Daniel Fish Gypsy so bad. I, I was inspired by his use of camera footage. I want to see one that like does this of like framing of like, a reality show. Ooh. So like camera that f- is also doing digitalization, which I'm also referencing white noise, a musical that no one saw except for me several times in Chicago. And, and every single Eva Van Hoffe production has ever yeah, existed. Ever. Yes. So, yes. So true. Somewhere, uh, Eva, uh, Eva, somewhere Eva Van Hoffe is getting a wet dream and he doesn't know why. Uh, <laughs> you're welcome. You can Venmo me. Um, <laughs> 
So yes, I think that like stripped down, like very like like bare elements, not like the full realization, but like yes, so that it frames um, Rose as like literally a celebrity by like filming her and putting her in this platform that didn't exist at the time is like the Chris Jenner. Love it. Drama. That is my update. <laughs> Preston, if you're to direct a production of Gypsy, what is like the number one thing you would keep in mind when directing it? Uh, bringing Louise more to the forefront. I awesome. know it's Rose's show, but like it always surprises me how long it takes to get to the core of who Louise is. And I, I think it can be all be acting. I think it has to be like, yeah. I'm not like, we have to rewrite it. Obviously we wouldn't. But like, I would really want to just draw her out more. I love that. Gypsy is an odd duck in the sense that it barrels through plot and time for the first 30 minutes. And then after those first three, 30 minutes, takes its sweet time getting to the end. And then races to the finish. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And then the last 20 minutes is like, bam, bam, bam. There they go. There they go. We have to end yeah. the show. It's not an HBO miniseries. Although ah. HBO miniseries version of Gypsy. I would rather that than a chorus line. Yes, hey, man, are they doing a chorus line? Ryan Murphy is doing a miniseries on Netflix about of a chorus line. Unclear exactly what, but something along the lines of it. Can you hear that? Can you hear the sound of me hitting my head on the mic? No, no, say, really can you hear my stomach growl <laughs> in revulsion? I don't want that very much, please. Preston, this has been delightful. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh my gosh, this has been a gift and a joy. Um, Thank you for having me. You're very welcome. Where can people find you on the social meds? Oh, I'm at Preston Max Allen on everything. On basically. absolutely everything. Yeah. The usual spelling. Yes, the, the traditional spellings of Preston Max and Allen. Yes. Uh, you can find me on oh. Instagram at Matt Coplick, the usual spelling. If you liked this episode, if you like this podcast, you want to hear more of it, you can rate us five stars. You can subscribe. You can write us a nice little review. I always like to say, if you hate the podcast, write me a scathing review, but keep it at five stars because that algorithm is real. And I have no problem reading your scathing reviews. I will read it out loud on the podcast even. Ooh, that's fun. Yeah. That's nice. Responding to scathing reviews to keep those ratings <laughs> Yeah, if you, want to, if you want me to read, read a scathing review, write it out, but give it five stars and I'll, I'll love it forever. Because it's Gypsy, uh, we've done Patty, we've done Bernie, and we've done Angela. We haven't done Tyne and we haven't done Merman. I think, I, much as I love the Tyne one, she's not in her best vocal life on her recording. So I think we're going to close out today with Merman as our diva to shut us out tonight. I love that. Yeah, me too. I love that. I love that journey for us. Uh, once again, guys, thank you so much for listening for everything that you've done for making it this way through. I hope that you haven't died yet listening to this long, long episode. Uh, and yeah, that's it. Thank you so much. Catch us next week when we get into a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. All right. Bye. Take us away. Ethel. An old man trouble. Say I don't find him, but you won't find him round my door. I got
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.